you could recognize this strange world with rubbish in the streets and uh, well rubbish filling up the houses rubbish filling up your head uh, it all seemed to make a great deal of sense as I think at first it didn't to the Americans um, why was all this well Dick was very much against the consumer society goods meant nothing to him uh, this I think was a very admirable and non-conformist trait in his character of course if he had any money he'd spend it on drugs well the 60s the drug culture began and Phil joined in enthusiastically um, partly he used it just as uh, amphetamines to, to he was producing a whole lot of work he was under constraints to produce uh, two or three novels a year so there would be nights when he would be writing all night long and he fueled it with drugs his first big success was was as the sort of poet laureate of the drug culture um, realistic novels about junkies are, are always you know depressing morbid stories of lower class scuzzy people Phil wrote stories that that a junkie could read and say Hey, what's happening to my mind? I mean, it, it was the the uh, prose equivalent of a drug trip. In Scanner Darkly, they're all taking this drug called death that uh, is burning out their brains. But since it's burning out your brain, you can't think straight about what's happening to you truly captures the poignance of people in our moment in history systematically slowly destroying themselves in the name of having fun and not being able to figure out what's happening to them and why everything's falling apart the way it is. They sleep like Count Dracula, he thought. Junkies do. Staring straight up until all of a sudden they sit up like a machine. Crank from position A to position B. It must be day, the junkie says. Or anyhow, the tape in his head says. Every junkie is a recording. It must be day. It must be There's a character in there that starts coming apart. And this is a character who is... Um, an undercover narcotics officer who ends up investigating himself. And he finds himself looking at tapes of himself and discovering the man is guilty of crimes that he didn't even know he had committed. He's dealing with his own sense of guilt and his own uh, inability to recognize himself. And it's, it's, it's schizophrenia at its best. And it's funny. There's two of me. There's the ashen, obsessive, endlessly working Calvinist. And then, there's the other part of me that doesn't give a... See, I'm two people. I'm on two sides of the fence. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday. February 17, 2022, so I have been told uh, this is our third study session 
on the Philip K. Dick's sci-fi classic, The Man in the High Castle. So we are resuming chapter six, uh, kind of the end of chapter six, almost quite at the end, uh, the portion where Mr. Tagami uh, they've announced that, well, we might have, you know, a new Fuhrer. We're kind of looking at the, the candidates for who's going to take over for the German nation. Uh, and they're listing, you know, Joseph Goebbels and all the rest of the uh, candidates. And Mr. Takomi says that he uh, feels like he might be going mad. That's what we're picking up at uh, right towards the end of Chapter 6. The audio segment that we heard at the beginning, uh, BBC, many people have, but that was specifically the BBC did a documentary on Philip K. Dick uh, some years ago. Uh, it's about an hour or so. Uh, you can check it out uh, online. That was just a brief snippet uh, from that documentary. Uh, it's called A Day in the Afterlife. Uh, it's about an hour uh, where you can hear them talking about uh, Mr. Dick being in the Bay Area, California, circa 1960s, in the middle of uh, what they call the counterculture revolution and the Black Panther Party and fighting against white supremacy, racism and anti-Vietnam movement and all the re- free love and drugs and the sexual revolution. All this stuff is going on. And so Philip K. Dick, drug addict uh, that is widely talked about when people get into his lifetimes and history I just think that's really important for this book because people have talked about it being confusing and this alternate universe and you know all this wackiness and, and all these different characters and things that are happening we are talking about a drug addict white man so that is one reason why this is kind of confusing to figure out anywho uh, we will continue along chapter six, uh, try as best we can to make sense of the work that we're reading. Also think it's important to kind of keep in mind, uh, Philip K. Dick, in addition to writing this book, he wrote the minority report. As I said before, uh, he also wrote the book, uh, that became the movie total recall, uh, in the book that became the movie blade runner. Like he's had a huge impact, uh, on white entertainment and literature, uh, over the last 20, 30 years or so drug addict, white man all this paranoia and belief in aliens and what have you again why this is kind of a difficult book to read so we will keep it in mind sobriety would be best Philip K. Dick sobriety would be best Philip K. Dick the man in the high castle context of white supremacy audio segment one several heads turned saw him humiliation sick at important meeting lost place he ran on through the open door held by embassy employee at once the panic ceased. His gaze ceased to swim. He saw objects once more. Stable floor, walls. Attack of vertigo. Middle ear malfunction, no doubt. He thought, diencephalon, ancient brainstem acting up. Some organic momentary breakdown. Think along reassuring lines. Recall order of world. What to draw on? Religion? He thought, now a gavotte performs sedately. Capital both. Capital both, you've caught it nicely. This is the style of thing precisely. Small form of recognizable world. Gondoliers, G and S. He shut his eyes, imagined the doily cart company as he had seen them on their tour after the war. The finite, finite world. An embassy employee at his elbow saying, Sir, can I give you assistance? Mr. Tagomi bowed. I am recovered. The other's face. Calm, considerate, no derision. They are all laughing at me, possibly? 
Mr. Takomi thought. Down underneath? There is evil. It's actual, like cement. I can't believe it. I can't stand it. Evil is not a view. He wandered about the lobby, hearing the traffic on Sutter Street, the foreign office spokesman addressing the meeting. All our religion is wrong. What'll I do? he asked himself. He went to the front door of the embassy. An employee opened it, and Mr. Tagomi walked down the steps to the path. The parked cars, his own, chauffeurs standing. It's an ingredient in us, in the world, poured over us, filtering into our bodies, minds, hearts, into the pavement itself. Why? We're blind moles, creeping through the soil, feeling with our snoots. We know nothing. I perceived this. Now I don't know where to go. Screech with fear only. Run away. Pitiful. Laugh at me, he thought, as he saw the chauffeurs regarding him as he walked to his car. Forgot my briefcase. Left it back there by my chair. All eyes on him as he nodded to his chauffeur. Door held open. He crept into his car. Take me to the hospital, he thought. No, take me back to the office. Nippon Times Building, he said aloud. Drive slowly. He watched the city, the cars, stores, tall buildings, now very modern. People, all the men and women, going on their separate businesses. When he reached his office, he instructed Mr. Ramsey to contact one of the other trade missions, the non-ferrous ores mission, and to request that their representative to the foreign office meeting contact him on his return. Shortly before noon, the call came through. Possibly you noticed my distress at meeting, Mr. Tagomi said into the phone. It was no doubt palpable to all, especially my hasty flight. I saw nothing, the non-ferrous man said. But after the meeting, I did not see you and wondered what had become of you. You are tactful, Mr. Tagomi said bleakly. Not at all. I am sure everyone was too wrapped up in the foreign office lecture to pay heed to any other consideration. As to what occurred after your departure, did you stay through the rundown of aspirants in the power struggle? That comes first. I heard to the part about Dr. Seiss Inquart. Following that, uh, the speaker dilated on the economic situation over there. The home islands take the view that Germany's scheme to reduce the populations of Europe and northern Asia to the status of slaves, plus murdering all intellectuals, bourgeois elements, patriotic youth, and whatnot, has been an economic catastrophe. Only the formidable technological achievements of German science and industry have saved them, a miracle weapons, so to speak. Yes, Mr. Tagomi said. Seated at his desk, holding the phone with one hand, he poured himself a cup of hot tea. As did their miracle weapons V-1 and V-2 and their jet fighters in the war. It is a sleight of hand business, the non-ferrous oarsman said. Mainly their uses of atomic energy have kept things together, and the diversion of their circus-like rocket travel to Mars and Venus. He pointed out that for all their thrilling import, such traffic has yielded nothing of economic worth. But they are dramatic, Mr. Tagomi said. His prognosis was gloomy. He feels that most high-placed Nazis are refusing to face facts vis-à-vis -vis their economic plight. By doing so, they accelerate the tendency toward greater tour de force adventures, less predictability, less stability in general. The cycle of manic enthusiasm, then fear, then party solutions of a desperate type. Well, the point he got across was that all this tends to bring the most irresponsible and reckless aspirants to the top. Mr. Tagomi nodded. So we must presume that the worst, rather than the best, choice will be made. 
The sober and responsible elements will be defeated in the present crash. Who did he say was the worst? Mr. Tagomi said. R. Heidrich, Dr. Seis Inquart, H. Goring, in the Imperial Government's opinion. And the best? Possibly Bivan Sherak and Dr. Goebbels, but on that he was less explicit. Anything more? He told us that we must have faith in the Emperor and the Cabinet at this time more than ever, that we can look toward the palace with confidence. Was there a moment of respectful silence? Yes. Mr. Tagomi thanked the non-ferrous oarsman and rang off. As he sat drinking his tea, the intercom buzzed. Miss Rufikian's voice came. Sir, you had wanted to send a message to the German consul? A pause. Did you wish to dictate it to me at this time? That is so, Mr. Tagomi realized. I had forgotten. Come into the office, he said. Presently she entered, smiling at him hopefully. You are feeling better, sir? Yes, an injection of vitamins has helped, he considered. Recall to me, what is the German consul's name? I have that, sir. Freiherr Hugo Rice. Mein Herr, Mr. Tagomi began. Shocking news has arrived that your leader, Herr Martin Bormann, has succumbed. Tears rise to my eyes as I write these words. When I recall the bold deeds perpetrated by Herr Bormann in securing the salvation of the German people from her enemies both at home and abroad, as well as the soul-shaking measures of sternness meted out to the shockers and traitors who would betray all mankind's vision of the cosmos, into which now the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Nordic races have after eons plunged in their... He stopped. There was no way to finish. Miss Afrikian stopped the tape recorder, waiting. These are great times, he said. Should I record that, sir? Is that the message? Uncertainly, she started up her machine. I was addressing you, Mr. Tagomi said. She smiled. Play my utterances back, Mr. Tagomi said. The tape transport spun. Then he heard his voice, tiny and metallic, issuing from the two-inch speaker. Perpetrated by Herr Bormann in his securing the salvation... He listened to the insect-like squeak as it rambled on. Cortical flappings and scrapings, he thought. I have the conclusion, he said, when the transport ceased turning. Determination to exalt and immolate themselves, and so obtain a niche in history from which no life-form can cast them, no matter what may transpire. He paused. We are all insects, he said to Miss Afrikian, groping towards something terrible or divine. Do you not agree? He bowed. Miss Afrikian, seated with her tape recorder, made a slight bow back. Send that, he told her. Sign it, etc. Work the sentences if you wish, so that they will mean something. As she started from the office, he added, or so that they mean nothing, whichever you prefer. As she opened the office door, she glanced at him curiously. After she had left, he began work on routine matters of the day, but almost at once Mr. Ramsey was on the intercom. Sir, Mr. Baines is calling. Good, Mr. Tagomi thought. Now we can begin important discussion. Put him on, he said, picking up the phone. Mr. Tagomi, Mr. Baines' voice came. Good afternoon. Due to news of Chancellor Bormann's death, 
I was unexpectedly out of my office this morning. However, did Mr. Yatabi get in touch with you? Not yet, Mr. Tagomi said. Did you tell your staff to keep an eye open for him? Mr. Bain said. He sounded agitated. Yes, Mr. Tagomi said. They will usher him in directly he arrives. He made a mental note to tell Mr. Ramsey, as yet he had not gotten around to it. Are we not to begin discussions then until the old gentleman puts in his appearance? He felt dismay. Sir, he began, I am anxious to begin. Are you about to present your injection molds to us? Although we have been in confusion today, there has been a change, Mr. Baines said. We'll wait for Mr. Yatabi. You are sure he hasn't arrived. I want you to give me your word that you'll notify me as soon as he calls you. Please exert yourself, Mr. Tagomi. Mr. Baines' voice sounded strained, jerky. I give you my word. Now he, too, felt agitation. The Borman death, that had caused the change. Meanwhile, he said rapidly, I would enjoy your company, perhaps at lunch today. I not having had opportunity to have my lunch yet. Improvising, he continued. Although we will wait on specifics, perhaps we could ruminate on general world conditions. In particular, no, Mr. Baines said. No. Mr. Tagomi thought. Sir, he said, I am not well today. I had a grievous incident. It was my hope to confide it to you. I am sorry, Mr. Baines said. I'll ring you back later. The phone clicked. He had abruptly hung up. I offended him, Mr. Tagomi thought. He must have gathered correctly that I tardily failed to inform my staff about the old gentleman. But it is a trifle. He pressed the intercom button and said, Mr. Ramsey, please come into my office. I can correct that immediately. More is involved, he decided. The Borman death had shaken him. A trifle, and yet indicative of my foolish and feckless attitude, Mr. Tagomi felt guilt. This is not a good day. I should have consulted the oracle, discovered what moment it is. I have drifted far from the Tao, that is obvious. Which of the sixty-four hexagrams, he wondered, am I laboring under? Opening his desk drawer, he brought out the I Ching and laid the two volumes on the desk. So much to ask the sages, so many questions inside me which I can barely articulate. When Mr. Ramsey entered the office, he had already obtained the hexagram. Look, Mr. Ramsey, he showed him the book. The hexagram was forty-seven. Oppression. Exhaustion. A bad omen, generally, Mr. Ramsey said. What is your question, sir, if I'm not offending you to ask? I inquired as to the moment, Mr. Tagomi said. The moment for us all. No moving lines. A static hexagram. He shut the book. At three o'clock that afternoon, Frank Frink, still waiting with his business partner for Wyndham Matson's decision about the money, decided to consult the oracle. How are things going to turn out, he asked, and threw the coins. The hexagram was forty-seven. He obtained one moving line, nine in the fifth place. His nose and feet are cut off. Oppression at the hands of the man with the purple knee bands. Joy comes softly. It furthers one to make offerings and libations. For a long time, at least half an hour, he studied the line and the material connected with it, trying to figure out what it might mean. The hexagram, and especially the moving line, disturbed him. At last he concluded reluctantly that the money would not be forthcoming. 
You rely on that thing too much, Ed McCarthy said. At four o'clock, a messenger from WM Corporation appeared and handed Frink and McCarthy a manila envelope. When they opened it, they found inside a certified check for $2,000. So you were wrong, McCarthy said. Frink thought, then the oracle must refer to some future consequence of this. That is the trouble. Later on, when it has happened, you can look back and see exactly what it meant. But now, we can start setting up the shop, McCarthy said. Today? Right now? He felt weary. Why not? We've got our orders made out. All we have to do is stick them in the mail. The sooner the better. And the stuff we can get locally, we'll pick up ourselves. Putting on his jacket, Ed moved to the door of Frink's room. They had talked Frink's landlord into renting them the basement of the building. Now it was used for storage. Once the cartons were out, they could build their bench, put in wiring, lights, begin to mount their motors and belts. They had drawn up sketches, specifications, parts lists. So they had actually already begun. We're in business, Frank Frink realized. They had even agreed on a name. Ed Frank Custom Jewelers. The most I can see today, he said, is buying the wood for the bench, maybe electrical parts, but no jewelry supplies. They went, then, to a lumber supply yard in South San Francisco. By the end of an hour, they had their wood. What's bothering you? Ed McCarthy said as they entered a hardware store that dealt on a wholesale basis. The money. It gets me down to finance things that way. Old WM understands, McCarthy said. I know, Frink thought. That's why it gets me down. We have entered the world. We're like him. Is that a pleasant thought? Don't look back, McCarthy said. Look ahead to the business. I am looking ahead, Frink thought. He thought of the hexagram. What offerings and libations can I make, and to whom? Chapter 7 The handsome young Japanese couple who had visited Robert Children's store, the Kasuras, telephoned him toward the end of the week and requested that he come to their apartment for dinner. He had been waiting for some further word from them, and he was delighted. A little early he shut up American Artistic Handcrafts, Inc., and took a pedicab to the exclusive district where the Kasuras lived. He knew the district, although no white people lived there. As the pedicab carried him along the winding streets with their lawns and willow trees, Chilton gazed up at the modern apartment buildings and marveled at the grace of the designs, the wrought-iron balconies, the soaring yet modern columns, the pastel colors, the uses of varied textures. It all made up a work of art. He could remember when this had been nothing but rubble from the war. The small Japanese children out playing watched him without comment then returned to their football or baseball. But, he thought, not so the adults. The well-dressed young Japanese, parking their cars or entering the apartment buildings, noticed him with greater interest. Did he live here? They were perhaps wondering. Young Japanese businessmen coming home from their offices, even the heads of trade missions lived here. He noticed parked Cadillacs. As the pedicab took him closer to his destination, he became increasingly nervous. Very shortly, as he ascended the stairs to the Kasura's apartment, he thought, Here I am, not invited in a business context, but a dinner guest. He had, of course, taken special pains with his attire. At least he could be confident of his appearance. My appearance, he thought. Yes, that is it. How do I appear? There is no deceiving anyone. I do not belong here. On this land that white men cleared and built one of their finest cities, I am an outsider in my own country. 
He came to the proper door along the carpeted hall, rang the bell. Presently the door opened. There stood young Mrs. Kasura, in a silk kimono and obi, her long black hair in shining tangle down her neck, smiling in welcome. Behind her in the living room, her husband, with a drink in hand, nodding. Mr. Children, enter. Bowing, he entered. Tasteful in the extreme, and so ascetic. Few pieces. A lamp here, table, bookcase, print on the wall. The incredible Japanese sense of wabi. It could not be thought in English. The ability to find in simple objects a beauty beyond that of the elaborate or ornate. Something to do with the arrangement. A drink? Mr. Kasura asked. Scotch and soda? Mr. Kasura, he began. Paul, the young Japanese said, indicating his wife. Betty, and you are... Mr. Children murmured, Robert. Seated on the soft carpet with their drinks, they listened to a recording of Koto, Japanese 13-string harp. It was newly released by Japanese HMV and quite popular. Children noticed that all parts of the photograph were concealed, even the speaker. He could not tell where the sound came from. Not knowing your appetites in dining, Betty said, we have played safe. In kitchen electric oven is boiling T-bone steak, along with this baked potato with sauce of sour cream and chives. Maxim utters, no one can err in serving steak to newfound guest first time. Very gratifying, Sheldon said. Quite fond of steak. And that certainly was so. He rarely had it. The great stockyards from the Middle West did not send out much to the West Coast anymore. He could not recall when he had last had a good steak. It was time for him to graft guest gift. From his coat pocket he brought small, tissue-paper-wrapped thing. He laid it discreetly on the low table. Both of them immediately noticed, and this required him to say, Bagatelle for you, to display fragment of the relaxation and enjoyment I feel in being here. His hand opened the tissue-paper, showing them the gift. Bit of ivory carved a century ago by whalers from New England tiny ornamented art object called a scrimshaw. Their faces illuminated with knowledge of the scrimshaws which the old sailors had made in their spare time. No single thing could have summed up old U.S. culture more. Silence. Thank you, Paul said. Robert Childen bowed. There was peace then for a moment in his heart. This offering, this, as the I Ching put it, libation, it had done what needed to be done. Some of the anxiety and oppression which he had felt lately began to lift from him. From Ray Calvin he had received restitution for the Colt 44, plus many written assurances of no second recurrence. And yet it had not eased his heart. Only now, in this unrelated situation, had he for a moment lost the sense that things were in the constant process of going askew. The wabi around him, radiations of harmony. That is it, he decided. The proportion, balance. They are so close to the Tao, these two young Japanese. That is why I reacted to them before. I sensed the Tao through them, saw a glimpse of it myself. What would it be like, he wondered, to really know the Tao? The Tao is that which first lets the light, then the dark. Occasions the interplay of the two primal forces so that there is always renewal. It is that which keeps it all from wearing down. The universe will never be extinguished because just when the darkness seems to have smothered all, to be truly transcendent, the new seeds of light are reborn in the very depths. 
That is the way. When the seed falls, it falls into the earth, into the soil, and beneath, out of sight, it comes to life. An hors d'oeuvre, Betty said. She knelt to hold out a plate on which lay small crackers of cheese, etc. He took two gratefully. International news much in notice these days, Paul said as he sipped his drink. While I drove home tonight, I heard direct broadcast of great pageant-like state funeral at Munich, including rally of 50,000, flags and the like, much Ich hatte einen Kamerad singing, body now lying in state for all faithful to view. Yes, it was distressing, Robert Children said. The sudden news earlier this week. Nippon Times tonight saying reliable sources declare B. van Chirac under house arrest, Betty said, by S.D. instruction. Bad, Paul said, shaking his head. No doubt the authorities desire to keep order, Children said. Von Chirac noted for hasty, headstrong, even half-baked actions, much similar to R. Hess in past. Recall mad flight to England. What else reported by Nippon Times? Paul asked his wife. Much confusion and intriguing. Army units moving from hither to yon. Leaves cancelled, border stations closed. Reichstag in session. Speeches by all. That recalls fine speech I heard by Dr. Goebbels, Robert Children said. On radio, year or so ago, much witty invective. Had audience in palm of hand, as usual. Ranged throughout gamut of emotionality. No doubt, with original Adolf Hitler out of things, Dr. Goebbels, A1 Nazi speaker. True. Both Paul and Betty agreed, nodding. Dr. Goebbels also has fine children and wife, children went on. Very high-type individuals. True, Paul and Betty agreed. Family man, in contrast to a number of other grand moguls there, Paul said. Of questionable sexual mores. I wouldn't give rumors time of day, Sheldon said. You refer to such as E. Roym? Ancient history, long since obliterated. Thinking more of H. Goring, Paul said, slowly sipping his drink and scrutinizing it. Tales of Rome-like orgies of assorted fantastic variety causes flesh to crawl even hearing about. Lies, Sheldon said. Well, subject not worth discussing, Betty said tactfully, with a glance at the two of them. They had finished their drinks, and she went to refill. A lot of hot blood stirred up in political discussion, Paul said. Everywhere you go. Essential to keep head. Yes, Children agreed. Calmness and order, so things return to customary stability. Period after death of leader critical in totalitarian society, Paul said. Lack of tradition and middle-class institutions combined... He broke off. Perhaps better drop politics, he smiled. Like old student days. Robert Children felt his face flush and he bent over his new drink to conceal himself from the eyes of his host. What a dreadful beginning he had made. In a foolish and loud manner he had argued politics. He had been rude in his disagreeing, and only the adroit tact of his host had sufficed to save the evening. How much I have to learn, Sheldon thought. They're so graceful and polite. And I, the white barbarian, it is true. For a time he contented himself with sipping his drink and keeping on his face an artificial expression of enjoyment. I must follow their leads entirely, he told himself. Agree always. Yet in a panic, he thought, my wits scrambled by the drink, and fatigue and nervousness. Can I do it? I will never be invited back anyhow. It is already too late. He felt despair. 
Betty, having returned from the kitchen, had once more seated herself on the carpet. How attractive, Robert Sheldon thought again. The slender body, their figures are so superior, not fat, not bulbous, no bra or girdle needed. I must conceal my longing, that at all costs. And yet now and then he let himself steal a glance at her, lovely dark colors of her skin, hair, and eyes. We are half-baked compared to them, allowed out of the kiln before we were fully done, the old aboriginal myth, the truth there. I must divert my thoughts, find social item, anything. His eyes strayed about, seeking some topic. The silence rained heavily, making his tension sizzle, unbearable. What the hell to say? Something safe. His eyes made out a book on a low black teak cabinet. I see you're reading The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, he said. I hear it on many lips, but pressure of business prevents my own attention. Rising, he went to pick it up carefully consulting their expressions. They seemed to acknowledge this gesture of sociality, and so he proceeded. A mystery? Excuse my abysmal ignorance. He turned the pages. Not a mystery, Paul said. On contrary, interesting form of fiction possibly within genre of science fiction. Oh, no, Betty disagreed. No science in it. Nor set in future. Science fiction deals with future, in particular future where science has advanced over now. Book fits neither premise. But, Paul said, it deals with alternate present. Many well-known science fiction novels of that sort. To Robert he explained, Pardon my insistence in this, but as my wife knows, I was for a long time a science fiction enthusiast. I began that hobby early in my life. I was merely twelve. It was during the early days of the war. I see. Robert Sheldon said with politeness. "'Care to borrow, Grasshopper?' Paul asked. "'We will soon be through, no doubt within a day or so. My office being downtown not far from your esteemed store, I could happily drop it off at lunchtime.' He was silent, and then, possibly, Sheldon thought, due to a signal from Betty, continued, "'You and I, Robert, could eat lunch together on that occasion.' "'Thank you,' Robert said. It was all he could say. Lunch in one of the downtown businessmen's fashionable restaurants. He and this stylish, modern, high-place young Japanese. It was too much. He felt his gaze blur. But he went on examining the book and nodding. Yes, he said. This does look interesting. I would very much like to read it. I try to keep up with what's being discussed. Was that proper to say? Admission that his interest lay in books' modishness? Perhaps that was low place. He did not know, and yet he felt that it was. One cannot judge by book being bestseller, he said. We all know that. Many bestsellers are terrible trash. This, however... He faltered. Betty said, Most true. Average taste really deplorable. As in music, Paul said. No interest in authentic American folk jazz, as example. Robert, are you fond of, say, Bunk Johnson and Kid Ori and the like? Early Dixieland jazz. I have record library of old such music. Original Janet recordings. Robert said, Afraid I know little about Negro music. They did not look exactly pleased at his remark. I prefer classical. Bach and Beethoven. Surely that was acceptable. He felt now a bit of resentment. Was he supposed to deny the great masters of European music, the timeless classics, in favor of New Orleans jazz from the honky-tonks and bistros of the Negro Quarter? 
Perhaps if I play selection by New Orleans Rhythm Kings... Paul began, starting from the room, but Betty gave him a warning look. He hesitated, shrugged. Dinner almost ready, she said. Returning, Paul once more seated himself. A little sulkily, Robert thought, he murmured, Jazz from New Orleans, most authentic American folk music there is, originated on this continent. All else came from Europe, such as corny English-style lute ballads. This is perpetual argument between us, Betty said, smiling at Robert. I do not share his love of original jazz. Still holding the copy of The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, Robert said, What sort of alternate present does this book describe? Betty, after a moment, said, one in which Germany and Japan lost the war. They were all silent. Time to eat, Betty said, sliding to her feet. Please come, two hungry gentlemen businessmen. She cajoled Robert and Paul to the dining table, already set with white tablecloth, silver, china, huge rough napkins, and what Robert recognized as early American bone napkin rings. The silver, too, was sterling silver American. The cups and saucers were Royal Albert, deep blue and yellow. Very exceptional. He could not help glancing at them with professional admiration. The plates were not American. They appeared to be Japanese. He could not tell, it being beyond his field. That is Amari Porcelain, Paul said, perceiving his interest. From Arita. Considered a first-place product. Japan. They seated themselves. Coffee? Betty asked Robert. Yes, he said. Thanks. Toward end of meal, she said, going to get the serving cart. Soon they were all eating. Robert found the meal delicious. She was quite an exceptional cook. The salad in particular pleased him. Avocados, artichoke heart, some kind of blue cheese dressing. Thank God they had not presented him with a Japanese meal, the dishes of mixed greens and meats of which he had eaten so much since the war. And the unending seafoods. He had gotten so that he could no longer abide shrimp or any other shellfish. I would like to know, Robert said, what he supposes it would be like in world where Germany and Japan lost the war. Neither Paul nor Betty answered for a time. Then Paul said at last, Very complicated differences. Better to read the book. It would spoil it for you, possibly, to hear. I have strong convictions on the subject, Robert said. I have frequently thought it over. The world would be much worse. He heard his voice sound out firm, virtually harsh. Much worse. They seemed taken by surprise. Perhaps it was his tone. Communism would rule everywhere, Robert continued. Paul nodded. The author, Mr. H. Abinson, considers that point as to unchecked spread of Soviet Russia. But same as in First World War, even on winning side, second-rate, mostly peasant Russia naturally takes pratfall, Big laughingstock, recalling Japan War with them, when... We have had to suffer to pay the cost, Robert said. But we did it for a good cause, to stop Slavic world inundation. Betty said in a low voice, Personally, I do not believe any hysterical talk of world inundation by any people, Slavic or Chinese or Japanese. She regarded Robert placidly. She was in complete control of herself, not carried away but she intended to express her feeling. A spot of color, deep red, had appeared in each of her cheeks. They ate for a time without conversing. I did it again, Robert Childen informed himself. Impossible to avoid the topic, because it's everywhere. 
in a book I happened to pick up or a record collection in these bone napkin rings, loot piled up by the conquerors, pillaged from my people. Face facts. I'm trying to pretend that these Japanese and I are alike. But observe, even when I burst out as to my gratification that they won the war, that my nation lost, there's still no common ground. What words mean to me is sharp contrast vis-a-vis -vis them. Their brains are different, souls likewise. Witness them drinking from English bone china cups, eating with U.S. silver, listening to Negro style of music. It's all on the surface. Advantage of wealth and power makes this available to them, but it's ersatz as the day is long. Even the I Ching, which they forced down our throats, it's Chinese, borrowed from way back when. Whom are they fooling? Themselves? Pilfer customs, right and left, wear, eat, talk, walk, as, for instance, consuming with gusto baked potatoes served with sour cream and chives, old-fashioned American dish added to their hall. But nobody fooled, I can tell you, me least of all. Only the white races endowed with creativity, he reflected. And yet I, blood member of same, must bump head to floor for these two. Think how it would have been had we won. Would have crushed them out of existence. No Japan today, and the USA gleaming great soul power in entire wide world. He thought, I must read that grasshopper book. Patriotic duty from the sound of it. Betty said softly to him, Robert, you are not eating. Is the food misprepared? At once he took a forkful of salad. No, he said. It is virtually the most delicious meal I have had in years. Thank you, she said, obviously pleased. Doing my best to be authentic. For instance, carefully shopping in teeny tiny American markets down along Mission Street. Understand that's the real McCoy. You cook the native foods to perfection, Robert Sheldon thought. What they say is true. Your powers of imitation are immense. Apple pie, Coca-Cola, stroll after the movie, Glenn Miller. You could paste together out of tin and rice paper a complete artificial America. Rice paper mom in the kitchen, rice paper dad reading the newspaper, rice paper pup at his feet. Everything. Paul was watching him silently. Robert Childen, suddenly noticing the man's attention, ceased his line of thought and applied himself to his food. Can he read my mind? he wondered. See what I'm really thinking? I know I did not show it. I kept the proper expression. He could not possibly tell. Robert, Paul said, since you were born and raised here, speaking the U.S. idiom, perhaps I could get your help with a book which has given me a certain trouble, novel from the 1930s by a U.S. author. Robert bowed slightly. The book, Paul said, which is quite rare, and which I possess a copy of nonetheless, is by Nathaniel West. Title is Miss Lonely Hearts. I have read it with enjoyment, but do not totally grasp N. West's meaning. He looked hopefully at Robert. Presently, Robert Sheldon admitted, I have never read that book, I fear. Nor, he thought, even heard of it. Disappointment showed in Paul's expression. Too bad. It is a tiny book. Tells about man who runs column in daily paper, receives heartache problems constantly, until evidently driven mad by pain and has delusion that he is J. Christ. Do you recall? Perhaps read long ago? No, Robert said. Gives strange view about suffering, Paul said. Insight of most original kind into meaning of pain for no reason, problem which all religions cope with. Religions such as Christian often declare must be sin to account for suffering. N. West seems to add more compelling view of this over older notions. N. West possibly saw it could be suffering without cause due to his being a Jew. 
Robert said. If Germany and Japan had lost the war, the Jews would be running the world today, through Moscow and Wall Street. The two Japanese, man and wife, seemed to shrink. They seemed to fade, grow cold, descend into themselves. The room itself grew cold. Robert Children felt alone, eating by himself, no longer in their company. What had he done now? What had they misunderstood? Stupid inability on their part to grasp alien tongue, the Western thought, eluded them, and so they took umbrage. What a tragedy, he thought as he continued eating. And yet, what could be done? Former clarity, that of only a moment ago, had to be drawn on for all it was worth. Full extent, not glimpsed until now. Robert Childen did not feel quite as badly as before, because the nonsensical dream had begun to lift from his mind. I showed up here with such anticipation, he recalled, near adolescent romantic haze befuddling me as I ascended stairs. But reality cannot be ignored. We must grow up. And this is the straight dope, right here. These people are not exactly human. They don the dress, but they're like monkeys dolled up in the circus. They're clever and can learn, but that is all. Why do I cater to them? Do solely to their having one? Big flaw in my character revealed through this encounter. But such is the way it goes. I have pathetic tendency to, well, shall we say, unerringly choose the easier of two evils. Like a cow catching sight of the trough, I gallop without premeditation. What I've been doing is to go along with the exterior motions because it is safer. After all, these are the victors. They command. And I will go on doing it, I guess. Because why should I make myself unhappy? They read an American book and want me to explain it to them. They hope that I, a white man, can give them the answer. And I try? But in this case I can't. Although, had I read it, I no doubt could. Perhaps one day I'll have a look at that Miss Lonely Heart's book, he said to Paul. And then I can convey to you its significance. Paul nodded slightly. However, at present I am too busy with my work, Robert said. Later on, perhaps. I am sure it wouldn't take me very long. No, Paul murmured. Very short book. Both he and Betty looked sad, Robert Sheldon thought. He wondered if they, too, sensed the unbridgeable gap between themselves and him. Hope so, he thought. They deserve to. A shame. Just have to ferret out Book's message on their own. He ate with more enjoyment. No further friction marred the evening. When he left the Kasura's apartment at ten o'clock, Robert Sheldon still felt the sense of confidence which had overtaken him during the meal. He meandered down the apartment house stairs with no genuine concern as to the occasional Japanese residents who, on their way to and from the communal baths, might notice him and stare. Out onto the dark evening sidewalk, then the hailing of a passing pedicab, and he was thereupon on his trip home. I always wondered what it would be like to meet certain customers socially. Not so bad after all. And, he thought, this experience may well help me in my business. It is therapeutic to meet these people who have intimidated you, and to discover what they are really like. Then the intimidation goes. Thinking along those lines, he arrived at his own neighborhood and finally at his own door. He paid the chink pedicab driver and ascended the familiar stairs. There in his front room sat a man he did not know, a white man wearing an overcoat, sitting on the couch reading the newspaper. As Robert Sheldon stood astonished in the doorway, the man put down his newspaper, leisurely rose, and reached into his breast pocket. He brought out a wallet and displayed it. 
Kempaitai. He was a Pinnock, employee of Sacramento and its state police, installed by the Japanese occupation authorities. Frightening. You're our children? Yes, sir, he said. His heart pounded. Recently, the policeman said, consulting a clipboard of papers which he had taken from a briefcase on the couch, you were paid a visit by a man, a white, describing himself as representing an officer of the Imperial Navy. Subsequent investigation showed that this was not so. No such officer existed. No such ship. He eyed Childen. That's correct, Childen said. We have a report, the policeman continued, of a racket being conducted in the Bay Area. This fellow evidently was involved. Would you describe him? Small, rather dark-skinned, Childen began. Jewish? Yes, Childen said. Now that I think about it, although I overlooked it at the time. Here's a photo. The Kempaitai man passed it to him. That's him, Childen said, experiencing recognition beyond any doubt. He was a little appalled by the Kempaitai's power of detection. How'd you find him? I didn't report it, but I telephoned my jobber, Ray Calvin, and told him... The policeman waved him silent. I have a paper for you to sign, and that's all. You won't have to appear in court. This is a legal formality that ends your involvement. He handed Chilton the paper, plus pen. This states that you were approached by this man and that he tried to swindle you by misrepresenting himself and so forth. You read the paper. The policeman rolled back his cuff and examined his watch as Robert Chilton read the paper. Is that substantially correct? It was, substantially. Robert Chilton did not have time to give the paper thorough attention, and anyhow he was a little confused as to what had happened that day. But he knew that the man had misrepresented himself, and that some racket was involved. And, as the Kempaitai man had said, the fellow was a Jew. Robert Chilton glanced at the name beneath the photo of the man, Frank Frink, born Frank Fink. Yes, he certainly was a Jew. Anybody could tell with a name like Fink. And he had changed it. Chilton signed the paper. Thanks, the policeman said. He gathered up his things, tipped his hat, wished Chilton good night, and departed. The whole business had taken only a moment. I guess they got him, Chilton thought, whatever he was up to. Great relief. They work fast, all right. We live in a society of law and order, where Jews can't pull their subtleties on the innocent. We're protected. I don't know why I didn't recognize the racial characteristics when I saw him. Evidently, I'm easily deceived. He decided, I'm simply not capable of deceit, and that renders me helpless. Without law, I'd be at their mercy. He could have convinced me of anything. It's a form of hypnosis. They can control an entire society. Tomorrow I will have to go out and buy that grasshopper book, he told himself. It'll be interesting to see how the author depicts a world run by Jews and communists, with the Reich in ruins, Japan no doubt a province of Russia, in fact, with Russia extending from the Atlantic to the Pacific. I wonder if he, whatever his name is, depicts a war between Russia and the USA. Interesting book, he thought. Odd nobody thought of writing it before. He thought, it should help to bring home to us how lucky we are. In spite of the obvious disadvantages, we could be so much worse off. Great moral lesson pointed out by that book. Yes, there are Japs in power here, and we have to build... Out of this are coming great things, such as the colonization of the planets. There should be a news broadcast on, he realized. Seating himself, he turned on the radio. Maybe the new Reich's chancellor has been picked. 
He felt excitement and anticipation. To me, that size inquart seems the most dynamic, the most likely to carry out bold programs. I wish I was there, he thought. Possibly someday I'll be well enough off to travel to Europe and see all that has been done. Shame to miss out. Stuck here on the West Coast, where nothing is happening. History is passing us by. Chapter 8 At eight o'clock in the morning, Freiherr Hugo Reis, the Reich's consul in San Francisco, stepped from his Mercedes-Benz 220E and walked briskly up the steps of the consulate. Behind him came two young male employees of the foreign office. The door had been unlocked by Rice's staff, and he passed inside, raising his hand in greeting to the two switchboard girls, the vice-consul, Herr Frank, and then in the inner office, Rice's secretary, Herr Fridderhoff. Freiherr, Fridderhoff said, there is a coded radiogram coming in just now from Berlin, preface one. That meant removing his overcoat and giving it to Federhoff to hang up. Ten minutes ago, Herr Kreitz von Mir called. He would like you to return his call. Thank you, Rice said. He seated himself at the small table by the window of his office, removed the cover from his breakfast, saw on the plate the roll, scrambled eggs and sausage, poured himself hot black coffee from the silver pot, then unrolled his morning newspaper. The caller, Kreutz von Mir, was the chief of the Sicherheitsdienst in the PSA area. His headquarters were located, under a cover name, at the air terminal. Relations between Rice and Kreutz von Mir were rather strained. Their jurisdiction overlapped in countless matters, a deliberate policy, no doubt, of the higher-ups in Berlin. Rice held an honorary commission in the SS, the rank of major, and this made him technically Kreutz von Mir's subordinate. The commission had been bestowed several years ago, and at that time Royce had discerned the purpose. But he could do nothing about it. Nonetheless, he chafed still. The newspaper, flown in by Lufthansa and arriving at six in the morning, was the Frankfurter Zeitung. Rice read the front page carefully. Von Schirach under house arrest, possibly dead by now. Too bad. Goring residing at a Luftwaffe training base, surrounded by experienced veterans of the war, all loyal to the fat one. No one would slip up on him. No S.D. Hatchetman. And what about Dr. Goebbels? Probably in the heart of Berlin, depending as always on his own wit, his ability to talk his way out of anything. If Heydrich sends a squad to do him in, Rice reflected, the little doctor will not only argue them out of it, he will probably persuade them to switch over, make them employees of the Ministry for Propaganda and Public Enlightenment. He could imagine Dr. Goebbels at this moment, in the apartment of some stunning movie actress, disdaining the Wehrmacht units bumping through the streets below. Nothing frightened that colonel. Goebbels would smile his mocking smile, continue stroking the lovely lady's bosom with his left hand, while writing his article for the day's Angriff with... Rice's thoughts were interrupted by his secretary's knock. I'm sorry, Kreutz von Mieder's on the line again. Rising, Rice went to his desk and took the receiver. Rice here. The heavy Bavarian accents of the local SD chief. Any word on the adver character? Puzzled, Rice tried to make out what Kreuz von Mir was referring to. Hmm, he murmured. To my knowledge, there are three or four of the characters on the Pacific coast at the moment. The one traveling in by Lufthansa was in the last week. Oh, Rice said. Holding the receiver between his ear and shoulder, he took out his cigarette case. He never came in here. What's he doing? God, I don't know. Ask Canaris. I'd like you to call the foreign office and have them call the chancery 
and have whoever's on hand get hold of the Admiralty and demand that the other either take its people back out of here or give us an account of why they're here. Can't you do that? Everything's in confusion. They've completely lost the Avver man, Rice decided. They, the local SD, were told by someone on Hydric's staff to watch him, and they missed a connection. And now they want me to bail them out. If he comes in here, Rice said, I'll have somebody stay on him. You can rely on that. Of course, there was little or no chance that the man would come in, and they both knew that. He undoubtedly uses a copper name, Kreutz von Mir plodded on. We don't know it, naturally. He's an aristocratic-looking fellow, about forty, a captain. Actual name, Rudolf Wegener, one of those old monarchist families from East Prussia, probably supported Van Papen in the system site. Rice made himself comfortable at his desk as Kreutz von Mir droned away. The only answer, as I see it, to these monarchist hangers-on is to cut the budget of the Navy so they can't afford... Finally, Rice managed to get off the phone. When he returned to his breakfast, he found the roll cold. The coffee, however, was still hot. He drank it and resumed reading the newspaper. No end to it, he thought. Those SD people keep a shift on duty all night, call you at three in the morning. His secretary, Federhoff, stuck his head into the office, saw that he was off the phone, and said, Sacramento called just now in great agitation. They claim there's a Jew running around the streets of San Francisco. Both he and Rice laughed. All right, Rice said. Tell them to calm down and send us the regular papers. Anything else? You read the messages of condolence? Are there more? A few. I'll keep them on my desk if you want them. I've already sent out answers. I have to address that meeting today, Rice said. At once this afternoon. Those businessmen. I won't let you forget, Federhoff said. Rice leaned back in his chair. Care to make a bet? Not on the part I deliberations, if that's what you mean. It'll be the hangman. Lingering, Federhoff said. Heydrich has gone as far as he can. Those people never pass over to direct part control because everyone is scared of them. The part bigwigs would have a fit even at the idea. You'd get a coalition in twenty-five minutes, as soon as the first SS car took off from Prinzelbrechtschasse. They'd have all those economic big shots like Krupp and Tyson. He broke off. One of the cryptographers had come up to him with an envelope. Rice held out his hand. His secretary brought the envelope to him. It was the urgent coded radiogram, decoded and typed out. When he finished reading it, he saw that Fitterhoff was waiting to hear. Rice crumpled up the message in the big ceramic ashtray on his desk, lit it with his lighter. There's a Japanese general supposed to be traveling here incognito, to Deki. You'd better go down to the public library and get one of those official Japanese military magazines that would have his picture. Do it discreetly, of course. I don't think we'd have anything on him here. He started toward the locked filing cabinet, then changed his mind. Get what information you can. The statistics. They should all be available at the library. He added, This General Tadeki was a chief of staff a few years ago. Do you recall anything about him? Just a little. Federhoff said. Quite a fire-eater. He should be about eighty now. Seems to me he advocated some sort of crash program to get Japan into space. On that he failed, Rice said. I wouldn't be surprised if he's coming here for medical purposes, Federhoff said. There's been a number of old Japanese military men here to use the big UC hospital. 
That way they can make use of German surgical techniques they can't get at home. Naturally, they keep it quiet. Patriotic reasons, you know. So perhaps we should have somebody at the UC hospital watching if Berlin wants to keep their eye on him. Rice nodded. Or the old general might be involved in commercial speculations, a good deal of which went on in San Francisco. Connections he had made while in service would be of use to him now that he was retired. Or was he retired? The message called him General, not Retired General. As soon as you have the picture, Rice said, pass copies right on to our people at the airport and down at the harbor. He may have already come in. You know how long it takes them to get this sort of thing to us. And, of course, if the general had already reached San Francisco, Berlin would be angry at the PSA consulate. The consulate should have been able to intercept him before the order from Berlin had even been sent. Ferdehoff said, I'll stamp date the coded radiogram from Berlin, so if any question comes up later on, we can show exactly when we received it, right to the hour. Thank you, Rice said. The people in Berlin were past masters at transferring responsibility, and he was weary of being stuck. It had happened too many times. Just to be on the safe side, he said, I think I'd better have you answer that message. Say, your instructions abysmally tardy. Person already reported in area. Possibility of successful intercept remote at this stage. Put something along those lines into shape and send it. You keep it good and vague. You understand? Fyodorov nodded. I'll send it right off and keep a record of the exact date and moment it was sent. He shut the door after him. You have to watch out, Rice reflected, or all at once you find yourself consul to a bunch of niggers on an island off the coast of South Africa. And the next you know, you have a black mammy for a mistress and ten or eleven little pickaninnies calling you daddy. Reseating himself at his breakfast table, he lit an Egyptian Simone Arts cigarette number 70, carefully reclosing the metal tin. It did not appear that he would be interrupted for a little while now, so from his briefcase he took the book he had been reading, opened to his placemark, made himself comfortable, and resumed where he had last been forced to stop. Context of white supremacy. One guess as to what Reese is reading. Yes, 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 yes. All righty. So we will pick up. <clears throat> so he gives us a little snippet. Had they actually walked streets of quiet cars? Sunday morning peace of the tear garden. That's what we're picking up at uh, where he's reading from presumably uh, the grasshopper lies heavy. But that's for audio segment two. The number to dial if you have commentary to share is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Do they use the term pickaninny? In the Amazon series of this book? I haven't seen enough episodes, but in the portions that I've seen, no mention of pickaninnies. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I did post a study guide. I posted it uh, all over social media and I believe it's linked 
uh, for in the description for this episode. If you didn't get it, drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. Happy to send it to you, or you can just look online, easy to find. But I did post that. It'll just if you get confused or want a little detail about the characters or the plot, um, leaves where the grasshopper lies heavy. Why is that so important? Why does that keep being referenced? Lots of study guides available that can be helpful with all of that. So the email I gave until justice at gmail.com. Some of our folks wrote in uh, again, since we had so many folks like a dozen or more people like, yes, let's read the man in the high castle. I love Philip K. Dick. Yeah. All right. So some of the folks who did write it, who did want to read this book, much obliged for the commentary makes it way more exciting and engaging when people actually are participating along with Gus T much obliged. So one of our investors wrote in, Hello, Gus. I just wanted to submit some of my thoughts on Man in the High Castle. I got a physical copy of the book. Check you out. So I'll have some page numbers this time. After the death of the Reich Chancellor Martin Borman, the Japanese showed just how differently they are from people classified as black. They called a meeting, said what they were going to do, and they did just that. Page 96. This meeting, which will not last long, underline, is for the purpose of informing you of our evaluation of several contending factions in German political life who can now be expected to step forth and engage in no-holds-barred competition for a spot evacuated by Hermann Goring. Bear with familiar details, please. And they proceeded to share the information gathered and the thorough analysis that had been made. I was impressed with the sharing of constructive information and also that there didn't seem to be any time wasted with bickering or non-constructive speech of any sort. The word seborrhytic was used on page 97 while describing Hermann Goring, the fat one. I had to look this up as I was unfamiliar with this term. Always a great idea when reading. Expand your vocabulary and generally you will get a better understanding of the material being read. A sybarite is defined as a person who is self-indulgent in their fondness for sensuous luxury. And sybaritic is the adjective used used to describe such a person. This man, although said to be unhealthy, possibly even morbidly so in terms of appetites, resembles more the self-gratifying ancient Roman Caesars whose power grew rather than abated as age progressed. Freight trains of stolen valuables made way to his private estates over military needs in wartime. Our evaluation, this man craves enormous power and is capable of obtaining it. Most self-indulgent of all Nazis. Wow, what a statement and how. And is in sharp contrast to the late H. Himmler, who lived in personal want at low salary. Air Goring, representative of spoils mentality, using power as means of acquiring personal wealth, primitive mentality, even vulgar but quite intelligent man, object of his drives, self-glorification in ancient emperor fashion. Almost the entire description of Hermann Goring made me think of Donald Trump. Also, that section right there made me think of Neely Fuller Jr. when he says... The entire goal of racist man, racist woman, fun, personal glory, material gain. Doesn't that sound just like it? Self 
glorification in ancient emperor fashion. Continuing, uh, reminds our investor, she said it reminded her of Donald Trump, the grabbing by the pussy locker room talk, the gold interior decor of his properties, the eating of KFC on Air Force One, having all the McDonald's stacked up for a sports team that visited the White House, the blatant attempt to retain office after he lost the so-called election and those military parades he wanted. Oh, boy. Herman Goring, Donald Trump. It's all the same. Throughout the system of white supremacy, indeed, page 100, there is evil. It's actual, like cement. Mr. Tagomi might be correct with his thought. I don't like to use terms like good and evil because they seem spiritual and the terms correct and incorrect are more mechanical, but a person who would harm another person for, what did I just say? Fun, glory, and or material gain is taking action that is beyond incorrect. So white supremacy is in a category of its own. No other group of people have thought up something as harmful and powerful as whites. So maybe evil is an accurate term to describe the way whites harm non-white people in all areas of people activity. We're blind moles creeping through the soil, feeling with our snoots we know nothing. I perceive this. Now I don't know where to go. Pitiful. This passage made me remember the immense sadness I felt when I began to see white supremacy as a system. I had heard Mr. Fuller speak, but it took me a while to understand what he was actually saying and just how awesome. Important word to look up. The problem is was i felt almost alone with that knowledge united independent and when i tried to communicate it to other people classified as black it seemed like they didn't comprehend what i was trying to share hmm. and beyond that they wanted to shut me up coon reading that passage brought tears to my eyes i am so thankful the cows exist oh if it helps me to know that I am not alone in my thoughts and observations and that I am not crazy. Now, I do tell listeners who say that frequently, it could be that Gus T is crazy and we just have a little pool of loony folks who dial in and support the cows and have done so for 13 years. That does happen. Sometimes all the nutty folks pile up in one end of the loony bin. Hopefully that's not here. Continuing page 104. We're all sent. We are all insects. He had he said to Miss Afrikian, groping, to, groping towards something terrible or divine. Do you not agree? Wow, I do agree. The white supremacists are working towards something terrible, and the non-whites who are trying to counter racism are working towards something that could be seen as divine. If your entire existence has been in a system of injustice, then working to produce justice is as close to divine as one could get, in my opinion and producing justice would be divine. Also, work the sentences so that they will mean something or they mean nothing, whichever you prefer. This passage shows a profound understanding of the usage of words as tools that can either communicate or confuse. Last week, I remember somebody saying they weren't sure who the protagonist was. We did. At this point, I think Mr. Tagomi is the protagonist. Also, is Miss Afrikian white or non-white? Has the text made it clear? I'm not sure. I'm going to have to go back and look at that to see. Has she been clearly identified as a, a white person or 
a non-white person, although that is a really interesting name, last name, surname, Afrikian. Continuing, chapter 7, page 108. A little early, he shut up American Artistic Handcrafts, Inc., and took a pre-pedicab to the exclusive district where the Kasuras lived. He knew the district, although no white people lived there. Philip K. Dick keeps writing these sorts of lines. They are things that non-white people think and feel in the world we live in. It illustrates that white people are not ignorant about racism. Believe it. They understand exactly what it's like for non-whites in a system of racism, white supremacy, and Mr. Dick is twisting it around to remind whites that if they aren't dedicated to racism, white supremacy, this is how it could be for them. Incidentally, it's like that in all of the sci-fi books, hyphen movies that are similar to this book that came out at the exact same time period. Planet of the Apes. Even uh, the Turner Diaries, which came out a little bit later, but they're all the same in terms of the white authors, the way that they write about the white psyche when there's no white supremacy racism. <sighs> exact same white people dash self-esteem and all the rest of it and how the same way that they would behave and feel the way that we behave and respond to being dominated and terrorized. They're not ignorant, but it's in, you'll see that in all of those books we talked, we've read the Turner diaries. Let's see. Uh, lost my place. Okay. Uh, twisting around. This is what it could be like for them. If we don't mistreat them, they'll mistreat us theme is constant from people who classify themselves as white and the term pedicab I looked it up on the internet and it said the legend goes that it was invented by Japan invented in Japan by a European missionary who needed a way to carry his invalid wife around pedicabs are also referred to as cycle rickshaws the text didn't specify but I think Mr. Children again had a non-white person using his muscles to get him to its destination that's what I thought when he took the pedigab because he had talked about that before and went into such great detail so I thought the same thing Uh, so much racism in this text indeed that's the whole book on page 109 there's no deceiving anyone I do not belong here on this land that white men cleared and built one of their finest cities I am an outsider in my own country white people lie even when they're telling the truth first Mr. Children is dismayed that he can't deceive people what a surprise when he admits to himself that he doesn't belong that's accurate but then he turns right around and lies and says white men cleared the land and built the cities now if white people first reached San Francisco in 1769-1776 I think they were definitely in charge of the building but I think mostly non-white people did the hard labor of clearing the land etc white people had slaves so that they could put them to hard work Uh, on page 110 when Mr. Children not to mention non-white people being in those areas first, but you know, yeah. on page 110, Mr. Children gets to the apartment of the Kasuras. The text says only now in this unrelated situation, had he for a moment lost the sense that things were in the constant process of going askew, the wobby around him, radiations of harmony. That is it. He decided the proportion balance. They are so close to the Tao, these two young Japanese. That is why I reacted to them before. I sense the Tao through them. 
saw a glimpse of it myself. What would it be like, he wondered, to really know the Tao, translate? What would it be like to be in balance with the universe? White people are so out of balance with the universe. Urugu was the first book that we read in the book club. Major theme of that. That's what Urugu means in essence. And it seems that they don't try to get in balance. Urugu. But they do see when other people have this quality and they lack. I think this is one of the things that white people are very good at looking at other groups of people and really noticing the things that they have that whites don't whether it's skin pigment a warm place to reside a sense of balance an abundance of natural resources whatever and they actually dedicate themselves to using those differences to subjugate and or mistreat non-whites uh wait a minute there's a passage i think that i highlighted that where that is stated explicitly let me see if i can find it really quick because i highlighted it let's see said so much i took so many notes too let's see it, it reminded me of, uh, hmm. Hmm. If I can't find it super quick, then I'll come back to it later. But I'm very sure that I highlighted it. It reminded me of Mark Twain and his passage about pigment. Um, yeah I will find it but they he, he said that himself when he came in and he was all concerned Mr. Children about saying the correct thing and all that when he's visiting the Kasuras and he's all stealing glances at Betty his wife like ooh she's so dark and that's exactly where it is that's exactly where it is I have to uh, find it uh, anyway I'll get to the folks who dialed in and then I'll be able to track it down but it's right there chapter 7 we just read it uh, I thought I'd highlighted it but I guess I missed it when I got old did I highlight it? There it is. Dang it. I highlighted the one around it. He says, Betty, having returned from the kitchen, had once more seated herself on the carpet. How attractive. Robert Children thought again, the slender body. Their figures are so superior. I highlighted it. Not fat, not bulbous, no bra or girdle needed. I must conceal my longing that at all, that at all costs. And yet now, and then he let himself steal a glance at her lovely, dark, colors of her skin hair and eyes we are half baked that's a delectable negro right half baked cooking yeah we are half baked compared to them allowed out of the killing before we were fully done the old aboriginal myth the truth there Mark Twain, you've heard that one before. Dr. Welsing, White Genetic Annihilation. Anywho, uh, the number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Kiln, K-I-L-N, he said, allowed out of the kiln is a furnace or oven for burning, baking, or drying, especially one for calcining lime or firing pottery. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting, Philip K. Dick. Anywho, uh, let's see. Folks have any thoughts who 
dialed in uh, on this portion of the reading uh, that we covered this week. Uh, also, if any folks have any thoughts on, uh, they said, uh, do we think there are any differences between this world, uh, Philip K. Dick's world, and the actual universe? Differences, comparisons, different, like how things are, how different are things between the two? It's kind of one to think about as we proceed. Let's look. Spectators, lots of spectators. Point that out again. We had dozens of folks asked to read this book. Then spectate. Definitely no fun to read when folks spectate. Get to some of my notes, the other emails, and then we'll get to the remainder of the text. Let's see. So the notes that I took this week, we came in like right at the end of chapter six. We just couldn't finish the whole thing last week. So from today, <clears throat> wow, I took a lot of notes this week. Uh, okay. So today there's so much like focus on like appearance and making sure that you do the correct thing. And I mean, Hey, there's a lot of that right now, 2022 for sure. But there's so much like constant, like, Ooh, can't do this. And Ooh, can't let the niggers uh, see me carry my own packet bag. And Ooh, you know, I, I, Mr. Tacomi, like, Oh, I got sick in front of everyone. Oh, I lost face. How disgraceful. Like there's so much of that. Like so many characters, Mr. Children's talking about that when he goes into the non-white neighborhood, uh, just on appearance and you got to do the right thing. Can't mess up, say the wrong thing, particularly having lots of white people be concerned about this. You have a lot of white people concerned about this now, but hyper concerned about this. A lot of Asian people so-called in the, in the book concerned about it too. The white uh, U.S. people be specific who are concerned about how they appear in public. Uh, he says next. Uh, <clears throat> when they're talking about the What's going to happen, they think, with the Nazi party as they look for the new leader. They, they say the cycle of manic enthusiasm, then fear, then parte solutions of desperate of a desperate type. Well, the point he got across was that all this tends to bring the most irresponsible and reckless aspirants to the top. Now, wow, we pitchfork Ben Tillman, Adolf Hitler, Donald Trump, lots of different examples of this type of person coming in to save the day in the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I thought it was important uh, when the Japanese are kind of given their uh, evaluation of who's going to be in charge. And they say, uh, who is going to be the worst? Mr. Tagomi asked, and they said, uh, R. Hadrick, Dr. Sace in court, or Herman Goring in the impairment in the imperial government's opinion. Again, all these folks are mentioned last week. These are all real people. Uh, you can go and, and check online, which I did last week. Uh, there's extensive information on all of these folks, sometimes whole books and reports that you can check out. How depends on how much time you want to investigate. Uh, specifically, Dr. Sess in court was the Nazi German who was mentioned last week. He was uh, found guilty at the Nuremberg trials and executed. As a matter of fact, Mr. Uh, says in court he's the one that they mentioned last week who came up with the program to exterminate the population in Africa that they hadn't completed yet but he's credited with that being one of his ideas and some of the other populations of non-white people so-called Jews let's see next <clears throat> I think the Philip K. Dick kind of portrays the non-white Japanese characters as being very much about like 
mysticism and voodoo. Everything is about, oh, I needed to consult the I Ching and figure out, you know, the best thing to do and what to say and balance in my life as opposed to the Germans are just logic. Mr. Takomi is regular about religion and how am I supposed to function and let me go get the I Ching. I should have consulted the Oracle and what should I do? And oh, that's why my whole day is messed up. That sort of attitude. Same thing that they say about niggers, you know, just a bunch of mumbo jumbo and mysticism, right? No logic. Can't think. Uh, chapter seven. Uh, so this is when Mr. Children is going to the Kasuras, non-white, and he goes to the neighborhood. This passage reminded me so much of Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, which we read way back 10 years ago. Uh, the second book that we read in the book club, where she has the passage where Pakola Breedlove, she goes to, I think it's her mom's house, uh, to, she goes to her mom's house, she, or no, 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 her mom is working at a white person's house. Uh, where Pakola, she's staying with her black friend, the black friend's mom is working at the white people's house. So they have to go to the white neighborhood and it is amazing. Uh, the late grandsister, Toni Morrison, she just, she does such an amazing way better than Philip K. Dick of painting a picture of how she said, it seemed like it was a whole new universe when they went to where the white people lived and the trees seemed taller and greener and the air seemed crisper and cleaner. Like it was just amazing. Um, but it's the same type of writing where he talks about being here and the winding streets and the lawns and the children. Like, what is he doing here? But it's not, what is this nigger doing? It's what is this white man doing here? He doesn't belong. Like what? What's going on? <laughs> same thing in Planet of the Apes, though, right? Same thing in Turner Diaries. Same thing in Melon Apocalypse, Daryl Bain. Lots of those that came out the same time period. Uh, I was curious when he said the Japanese children were playing football. Like, did he mean soccer or like American brain damage football? I wasn't, you know, I don't think they play foot like brain damage American football in Japan. Like, I don't think they do that. Um, let's see. So children, he says he could be confident of his appearance. See my appearance. He thought, yes, that is it. How do I appear? There's no deceiving anyone. I do not belong here. Woof. That is victims. How they make us feel. Have uh, the, Ahmad Arbery. What are you doing here? Even if you do live here, what are you doing here? Might have to shoot you. Delivery driver might have to shoot you. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Uh, let's see. Wabi. I actually did stop uh, to look that up. So Wabi uh, might be incorrect. I looked online, find several sites. The meaning of Wabi, the noun form of the verb Wabu is better understood from its adjective form. Wabi Shili wretched. That is, it means an inferior state as opposed to splendor. In other words, it means a humble like state or a simple look nowadays in the extreme it may mean a poor look or poverty originally it was not a good concept however through the influence of the zen sect it became to be regarded favorably and to be taken as having a form of beauty wabi really means poverty or negatively not to be in the fashionable society okay so that's some of what I was able to find with Wabi. So tasteful in the extreme. That's Mr. Children talking about the uh, Kasura's home, these non-white, this non-white couple. And so aesthetic, few pieces, a lamp here, a table, bookcase, print on the wall, the incredible Japanese sense of 
wabi. So here I think it would be more like humility, humble. It could not be thought in English. The ability to find in simple humble uh, humility objects of beauty beyond that of the elaborate or ornate. Something to do with the arrangement. Uh, let's see. Next. He gives them a gift of carved ivory. I thought that was important as well. White. Uh, whiteness as this gift of graft uh, as well. Like they have all this graft uh, that I guess is supposed to be illegal, but there's so much of it where you have to uh, bribe people and, you know, try to get them to curry favor uh, with folks. Seems like there's a lot of that. Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. Oh, another passage I found fascinating. So, Children feels like he he is making a lot of errors uh, in just not being able to have a calm uh, exchange with these non-white people. He's messing up and challenging things and saying too much appearance. Right. So he says Robert Children felt his face flush and he bent over uh, to he bent over his new drink to conceal himself from the eyes of his host. What a dreadful beginning he had made in a foolish and loud manner. He had argued politics. He had been rude in his disagreeing and only the adroit tact of his host had sufficed to save the evening. How much I have to learn children thought they're so graceful and polite. And I, the white barbarian, it is true. Now, I mean, wow, what they say, there's some truth in your fiction. Now, one, I think, again, same thing, our investor who wrote in, this is normally us. We got to make sure did I do the right thing. Did I order the right thing? Am I sitting correctly? Did I use the right pronoun and all this to make sure that I don't step on any toes? I don't upset anyone. I want to make sure I'm a well-behaved Negro. And, you know, I studied and I'm, you know, I'm worthy of not being mistreated. I'm worthy of white uh, validation. Like, please don't treat me like a Negro. You know, I'm, I'm OJ. Right. I'm not a Negro. I'm not like them. That's normally us. But I again like she said not balanced right and him recognizing that i am the one that's not balanced i am the barbarian some truth in your fiction uh let's see Mm -mm -mm. let's see already read that one half-baked delectable negro grasshopper lies heavy pops up again folks can think about why that keeps popping up uh, let's see. Next. Dixieland Jazz. I had such a big smile. So the Asian couple, Betty and Paul, Paul is a big time jazz fan. Uh, and even that they talk about that. Like, why do, why is, uh, this nostalgia for like, uh, old renaissance american culture why is that and i said that's the same white like trophy collection like white people will say that they're woody allen will say oh i just love negro new orleans jazz that's exactly what he said in his memoir that we just read uh where there's oh i just collect native american art oh i got to go uh roam through the continent and get king tut's tomb and raid all of that go and conquer people and then collect all of their uh cultural uh paraphernalia and what have you after you slaughter them and even sometimes take their actual carcasses and then those are your trophies for the people that you've conquered standard racist behavior so he just assumes that they would do the same thing 
go and then you take the culture of the people that you've conquered. He even writes about that explicitly. Uh, but they love, Paul at least loves the Negro jazz music. Uh, Mr. Chill's like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't relate to that. I don't know anything about Negro music. Uh, and they did not look exactly pleased at his remark. I don't know if that's because he said Negro or because he doesn't like the music, which even Betty says she's not a big fan either. So maybe it was more than two. What do you mean Negro? Did he say Negro? What? I think Alice Siebel referred to Anthony Broadwater in as a Negro in the book that we just read. And we had a big discussion about that. Now, this book is written in 1965. You for sure are a Negro by white people in 1965, if not an out and out Negro. Now, by 1981, probably, but not as widespread. Anywho, uh, Paul says jazz from New Orleans, most authentic American folk music there is originated on this continent. All else came from Europe, such as corny English style lute ballads. Children is upset. Oh, total disregard of white culture. And white people say this sort of thing. Woody Allen, it's like you, that Woody Allen probably has several sentences that are just like that. And apropos of nothing that we just read, you could slip that in his book and it would fit perfectly. Except he has a whole lot of uh, black male homoeroticism in his book. I haven't seen any of that in this text, but maybe we'll we'll continue. Uh, Delectable Negro again. They have early American bone napkin rings like bones from whom? Where are these from Negroes and non-white people that they've lynched and conquered? Let's see. They have all the standard American diet meal and he's thankful. He says, thank God they had not presented him with a Japanese meal that would probably be more healthy. He says, uh, dishes of mixed greens and seafood. He complains, oh, the seafood, which would probably be way better than blue cheese and steak cheese clog your arteries up. But, you know, standard American diet. Let's see. Uh, they had this big conversation about what the world would be like if, uh, the Nazis, Japan had lost the war, communism would rule everywhere, whatever that means. Mr. Fuller would say it doesn't matter because the master communists, capitalists, socialists are all classified as white and specifically white supremacist racists. But again, whatever communism means, Oof, that was a big word at the time of the writing of this book, 1962. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is important. So he makes another slip where he says, uh, if Japan, Germany had lost, we would be inundated with Slavic world inundation. I don't know what that means. Like what? That sounds like another one of those. We got rapists coming over the border and all the rest of it type of, you know, rhetoric I'm accustomed to. Uh, and Betty checks him. She says, I do not believe any hysterical talk of world inundation by any people, Slavic, Chinese, or Japanese. I think all these folks might be considered non-white, at least two of the three for sure. Like, uh oh, you, you can't even make a comment about wanting to put a wall up or a fence up without being checked immediately. And even by a woman that you think is attractive. Yee, oh, what has become of the world? And then they have to eat in silence after this. Like, oh, I got in trouble again. Oh. And he says that I did it again. Children informed himself impossible to avoid the topic because it's everywhere. Now, what is the topic in a book 
I happened to pick up or record collection. The only record collection they mentioned was the Negro recordings in these bone napkin rings loot piled up by the conquerors pillage from my people. There is some truth in your fiction. What he said, he didn't say he was ignorant. He said it's everywhere. I can't talk about anything without it coming up. Racism, white supremacy, and we don't even have that. I'm a white man. I don't dominate. What can I say? Oh, he continues face facts. I'm trying to pretend that these Japanese and I are alike, but observe even when I burst out as to my gratification that they won the war that my nation lost. There's still no common ground. What words mean to me is sharp contrast vis-a-vis them their brains are different is this in the Amazon series I can tell you right now like if you are trying to shortcut I sent out a study guide that Amazon series is not a study guide for this this is not in the Amazon series I haven't even watched it but what I've seen this is not there and they've said what I've seen online, not just is the television series, not this book. The more you watch it, the further away from the book it deviates. I'm not surprised. They're not going to give you this level of clarity. In fact, I'll back up and read again. Face facts. I'm trying to pretend that these Japanese and I are alike, but observe even when I burst out as to my gratification that they won the war that my nation lost there's still no common ground what words mean to me is sharp contrast vis-a-vis them their brains are different souls likewise witness them drinking from English bone china cups eating with U.S. silver, listening to Negro style of music. It's all on the surface. Advantage of wealth and power makes them a bit, makes this available to them, but it's ersatz as the day is long. Mm. I'm just skipping a little bit. Only the white races. Now that's interesting. Races? Hmm. White people do have that hierarchy amongst themselves, white, German, all the rest of it. They Italian, they'll grouse about all that. Only the white races endowed with creativity he reflected. And yet I blood member of same must bump head to floor for these two. Think how it would have been had we won, would have crushed them out of existence. No Japan today. It does not get much more direct than that in terms of communicate. What does it mean to be white? It does not get much clearer in a text. Also, are white people ignorant about racism, white supremacy? He didn't just say I'm informed. He said, hey, it's everything we could possibly talk about. The napkins, the music we're listening to, what's on television, politics, everything. 
That's the same thing that I say. All areas of people activity all over the world. Let's see. Dixieland Jazz. We have been playing Dixie here for 13 years. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Mm -mm 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 -mm. <laughs> Gives one where he said, uh, so he had been feeling uneasy beforehand. Um, and he gets to the part they're talking about the grasshopper if the grasshopper the grasshopper lies heavy and he says if Japan Germany had lost the war the Jews would be running the world today through Moscow and the Wall Street the two Japanese man and wife seemed to shrink they seemed to fade grow cold descend into themselves the room grew cold Robert children felt alone eating by himself no longer in their company what had he done now? What had they misunderstood? Stupid inability on their part to grasp alien tongue, the Western thought, eluded them. Now, that's even that's interesting because it's not that they're alien. He's alien tongue in his own land. Right. That's what he said. Uh, eluded them. And so they took umbrage. What a tragedy. He thought as he continued eating. And yet what could be done? Former clarity that of only a moment ago had to be drawn on for all it was worth full extent not glimpsed until now Robert children did not feel quite as badly as before because the nonsensical dream had begun to lift from his mind I showed up here with such anticipation he recalled near adolescent romantic haze befuddling me as I ascended stairs but reality cannot be ignored we must grow up. Now, that almost sounds like you have to accept things as they are. That's the job of the physician, right? Help clients, psychiatrists to help people embrace reality, even when they are hesitant to do so. Being mature, accept things as they are. And this is the straight dope right here. These people are not exactly human. And he has that in italics. Philip K. Dick drug addict said this is the straight dope right here like uh oh give it to us give it to us pure these people are not exactly human and he's not even talking about niggers they don't they don the dress but they're like monkeys dolled up in the circus I would stop and play the Neely Fuller Jr. clip but I mean hey he did say that at our best President Obama First Lady Michelle Obama whoever they picked for the Supreme Court Justice you put them with Clarence Thomas these are niggers with a gavel or oh, excuse me well that is applicable but for this one it's these are monkeys in a suit monkeys in a dress monkeys in a car monkeys on the Supreme Court of the United States doesn't matter how many degrees you have hey what he said that's what they see Philip K. Dick bang cosign right there on Neely Fuller Jr. cosign also on Dr. Curry the man 
not woman knife like you would be generous to be children apes and gorillas let's see let me get the whole sentence he said they don the dress but they're like monkeys dolled up in the circus they're clever and can learn but that is all that is in italics as well and just the second half of the sentence but that is all and he starts to feel better that straightens up his back yeah that's right I came thinking I'm an impressive curry favorite these slant eyed chink monkeys and whatever I'm a white man I know I'm a white man I'm not gonna sit around here and think that I'm gonna get some understanding give me my fork (sighs) what does it mean to be white let's see and he then then look how look how (laughs) once he gets his mojo back right he says hey he wondered if they too sensed the unbridgeable gap between themselves and him hope so he thought they deserve to a shame just have to ferret out books message on their own can I say one thing really quick now this is one you have to really be paying attention to the grammar one of the study questions asked have you noticed the difference between the language in the book when the white people or just the language the English language is it different these characters English is a little off I would have to pick out like it several times and that's in Planet of the Apes too where the demise of white people is somehow connected to language like in Planet of the Apes it's not just that the monkeys can talk white people cannot talk at least that's the book and and that continues throughout the series even if you watch the like super new versions uh, of Planet of the Apes the ones that came out like 2011 and all that since Obama was in office uh, it's the same thing the apes as they learn to talk and sign as their communication goes up white people goes down specifically it's some sort of disease that white people get and that the monkeys are immune to white people get the whatever the disease is like Alzheimer's and they lose the ability to function and they lose the ability to speak but the sentence I just read I hope so he thought they deserve to a shame just have to ferret out the book's message on their own NASA assumed the subject but I mean these are not exactly complete sentences and it's like that throughout uh, the book uh, where the, I'll have to point some more out but it's it's enough of them where hmm this is not quite the king's English that you would typically get from characters and I'm saying it's deliberate where their English is a little defective uh, else? meandered is one of my favorite words then he meanders down the street and then right after that he says he meanders down the street it's therapeutic to meet these people even that phrase is whoo these people who have intimidated Philip K. Dick is giving straight code in some of this like whoo uh, I've always wanted, wanted I'm backing up a little bit just to make sure that I emphasize I always wanted what it would be like to meet certain customers socially not so bad after all and he thought this experience may help me in my business the business of white supremacy it is therapeutic to meet these people who have intimidated you and to discover what they are really like 
then the intimidation goes thinking along these lines he arrived at his own neighborhood and finally at his own door he paid the chink yes indeed non-white person pedicab driver and ascended the familiar stairs I mean just fascinating all the way through to see where his self-respect as a white man where it started being so low and then how it got high dehumanizing these non-white people at least in his head these are monkeys you're a white man get it together trying to think you're equal to them trying to have them think well of you <laughs> they are beneath you even though they won like whatever have my food and they hopefully they recognize that we are not the same they're a pair of chimps that I'm eating with let me get out of here chink get the bags what does it mean to be white and again the masters of anti-Asian violence uh, let's see Leanne that's one of my favorite words uh, children goes back and they want to find the guy who came to the shop before told him his guns were fake uh, Welsing moment and he describes him as being rather dark skinned of course anyone who is criminal is dark uh, and he goes on his rant about the Jews and they're so sneaky and they can slip by you and you can't even identify them like, man they're tricky Gotta be careful about these folks uh, let's see Mm-mm-mm. yeah I'll stop there uh, again so we get it mentioned again uh, right at the end of chapter is that chapter 7 uh, he says he felt the excitement and anticipation to me that Cess Inquart now again this is the Nazi German uh, unless my memory is bad prosecuted at the Nuremberg trials and he was executed for war crimes but this is the guy uh, who in the book is credited with the program to commit genocide on the continent, getting rid of all the Negras, uh, who, hey, this guy, dynamic, great programs to carry out, get rid of all the Negras, uh, cleanse Africa, great, great. Uh, let's see, that's, I think, all the notes yeah, that I have for the first portion of the text. We didn't really get to very much of chapter eight, which is where we'll pick up at for uh, the next portion. Oh, oh, I did have one note chapter. Let's see. When I, uh, oh, my one note from chapter eight. Uh, Ferderhoof nodded. I'll send it right off and keep a record of the exact date and moment it was sent. Speaking to Rice, he shut the door after him. You have to watch out, Reese reflected, or all at once you find yourself counseled to a bunch of niggers on an island off the coast of South Africa. And the next, you know, you have a black mammy for mistress and 10 or 11 little pickaninnies calling you daddy. Whoa, cowbell, but whoa. Again, now this is if you mess up and don't say the correct thing. Don't give off the correct appearance could mess up your career. And as opposed to moving up the ranks. This, I guess, this is the ultimate punish. You get punishment. You get banished to Negroland. And it's not just you go to Negroland and chill out or whatever. Oh, no, 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 no. You end up with a black mammy for a mistress. Now, what? Why would that happen? Does the mammy have a gun like at gunfire? We're going to be swirling. You can give me some children. Is that what happens? hankering for dark meat is that what this is again and even that Philip K. Dick knows this 
white hankering for dark meat that ah, my career's ruined in shambles, not moving up the ranks. I'm over here with the niggers. Oh, well. Might as well get some pickaninnies while I'm here. This is kind of heteronormative as well, so I guess this could mean also that you could get all the African boys, males that you would like as well. That's what Africa is. One day, we did have uh, that white man on the book, the East, the West, and Sex. The line in the book was the whole world as the white man's brothel. Anywho, like I said, I don't think this is in the television series talking about black people as pickaninnies and all the rest of it. Chink. They do say Jap in there a lot, but I think they sanitize a lot of this for Amazon. Anywho, uh, folks spectating. I didn't see any hands. No thoughts, no commentary. Again, this is a book. I think also because it's we don't really read fiction very often. Uh, on the cows for fiction books you kind of have to be following along to kind of make sense of this and keep up with the characters uh, and all of that so there are uh, easily copies of the book available ebooks and all the rest of it if folks want to follow along and pay attention uh, or they I reckon can uh, spectate as we continue to ride through uh, the rest of the book uh, I do not see hands so we will go ahead and get started I'll read the rest of our emails uh, once we get back, finish the second audio segment. Uh, if you have thoughts to share, make a note. We should have ample time to share. Uh, write it down as we will get back to Philip K. Dix. Philip K. Dick. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that's I guess that's his real name. I haven't seen any information uh, that that's not his name. So assume that's his real name. Woody Allen. Remember, that was not where that is not uh, his name. But Philip K. Dick. Interesting. Anywho. Uh, Mr. Philip K. Dix, uh, the man in the high castle. So we're picking up pretty much at the very beginning of chapter eight context of white supremacy. Had he actually walked streets of quiet cars, Sunday morning peace of the tear garden so far away, another life, ice cream, a taste that could never have existed. Now they boiled nettles and were glad to get them. God, he cried out, won't they stop? The huge British tanks came on. Another building. It might have been an apartment house or a store, a school or office. He could not tell. The ruins toppled, slid into fragments. Below in the rubble, another handful of survivors buried, without even the sound of death. Death had spread out everywhere equally, over the living, the hurt, the corpses layer after layer that already had begun to smell. The stinking, quivering corpse of Berlin, the eyeless turrets still upraised, disappearing without protest like this one, this nameless edifice that man had once put up with pride. His arms, the boy noticed, were covered with the film of gray, the ash, partly inorganic, partly the burned, sifting final produce of life, all mixed now, the boy knew, and wiped it from him. He did not think much further. He had another thought that captured his mind if there was thinking to be done over the screams and the hump-hump of the shells. Hunger. For six days he had eaten nothing but the nettles, and now they were gone. The pasture of weeds had disappeared into a single vast crater of earth. Other dim, gaunt figures had appeared at the rim, like the boy, had stood silent and then drifted away. An old mother with a babushka tied about her gray head, basket empty under her arm. A one-armed man, his eyes empty as the basket, 
A girl, faded now back into the litter of slashed trees in which the boy Eric hid. And still the snake came on. Would it ever end? the boy asked, addressing no one. And if it did, what then? Would they fill their bellies, these... Freiherr, Federhoff's voice came. Sorry to interrupt you. Just one word. Rice jumped, shut his book. Certainly. How that man can write, he thought, completely carried me away. Real, fall of Berlin to the British, as vivid as if it had actually taken place. Ugh, he shivered. Amazing, the power of fiction, even cheap popular fiction, to evoke. No wonder it's banned within Reich territory. I'd ban it myself. Sorry I started it. But too late. Must finish now. His secretary said, Some seamen from a German ship. They're required to report to you. Yes, Rice said. He hopped to the door and out to the front office. There the three seamen, wearing heavy gray sweaters, all with thick blonde hair, strong faces, a trifle nervous. Rice raised his right hand. Heil Hitler! He gave them a brief, friendly smile. Heil Hitler, they mumbled. They began showing him their papers. As soon as he had certified their visit to the consulate, he hurried back into his private office. Once more alone, he reopened The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. His eyes fell on a scene involving Hitler. Now he found himself unable to stop. He began to read the scene out of sequence, the back of his neck burning. The trial, he realized, of Hitler. After the close of the war, Hitler in the hands of the Allies, good God, also Goebbels, Goring, all the rest of them, at Munich. Evidently Hitler was answering the American prosecutor. Black, flaming, the spirit of old seemed for an instant once again to blaze up. The quivering, shambling body jerked taut, the head lifted. Out of the lips that ceaselessly drooled, a croaking half-bark, half-whisper. Deutsche, yes, Derek! Shudders among those who watched and listened. The earphones pressed tightly, strained faces of Russian, American, British, and German alike. Yes, Carl thought. Here he stands once more. They have beaten us, and more. They have stripped this Superman, shown him for what he is. Only, uh, Freiherr? Rice realized that his secretary had entered the office. I'm busy, he said angrily. He slammed the book shut. I'm trying to read this book, for God's sake. It was hopeless. He knew it. Another coded radiogram is coming in from Berlin, Flitterhoff said. I caught a glimpse of it as they started decoding it. It deals with the political situation. What did it say? Rice murmured, rubbing his forehead with his thumb and fingers. Dr. Goebbels has gone on the radio unexpectedly. A major speech, the secretary was quite excited, was supposed to take the text, they're transmitting it out of code, and make sure it's printed by the press here. Yes, yes, Rice said. The moment his secretary had left once more, Rice reopened the book. One more peek, despite my resolution. He thumbed the previous portion. In silence, Carl contemplated the flag-draped casket. Here he lay, and now he was gone, really gone. Not even the demon-inspired powers could bring him back. The man, or was it after all, Ubermensch, whom Karl had blindly followed, worshipped, even to the brink of the grave. Adolf Hitler had passed beyond, but Karl clung to life. I will not follow him, Karl's mind whispered. I will go on, alive, and rebuild. 
and we will all rebuild. We must. How far, how terribly far the leader's magic had carried him. And what was it, now that the last dot had been put on that incredible record, that journey from the isolated rustic town in Austria, up from rotting poverty in Vienna, from the nightmare ordeal of the trenches, through political intrigue, the founding of the party, to the chancellorship, to what, for an instant, had seemed mere world domination? Karl knew. Bluff. Adolf Hitler had lied to them. He had led them with empty words. It is not too late. We see your bluff, Adolf Hitler, and we know you for what you are at last. And the Nazi party, the dreadful era of murder and megalomaniacal fantasy for what it is, what it was. Turning, Karl walked away from the silent casket. Rice shut the book and sat for a time. In spite of himself, he was upset. More pressure should have been put on the Japs, he said to himself, to suppress this damn book. In fact, it's obviously deliberate on their part. They could have arrested this, whatever his name is, Abinson. They have plenty of power in the Middle West. What upset him was this. The death of Adolf Hitler, the defeat and destruction of Hitler, the Partei and Germany itself, as depicted in Abinson's book. It was all somehow grander, more in the old spirit than the actual world, the world of German hegemony. How could that be? Rice asked himself. Is it just this man's writing ability? They know a million tricks, those novelists. Take Dr. Goebbels. That's how he started out, writing fiction. Appeals to the base lusts that hide in everyone, no matter how respectable on the surface. Yes, the novelist knows humanity, how worthless they are, ruled by their testicles, swayed by cowardice, selling out every cause because of their greed. All he's got to do is thump on the drum, and there's his response. And he laughing, of course, behind his hand at the effect he gets. Look how he played on my sentiments, Herr Rice reflected, not on my intellect. And naturally, he's going to get paid for it. The money's there. Obviously, somebody put the Huntsfot up to it, instructed him what to write. They'll write anything if they know they'll get paid. Tell any bunch of lies, and then the public actually takes the smelly brew seriously when it's dished out. Where was this published? Herr Rice inspected the copy of the book. Omaha, Nebraska, last outpost of the former plutocratic U.S. publishing industry, once located in downtown New York and supported by Jewish and communist gold. Maybe this Abinson is a Jew. They're still at it, trying to poison us. This Judish Buch. He slammed the covers of the grasshopper violently together. Actual name, probably Abenstein. No doubt the SD has looked into it by now. Beyond doubt, we ought to send somebody across into the RMS to pay Herr Abenstein a visit. I wonder if Kurtz von Mir has gotten instructions to that effect. Probably hasn't, with all the confusion in Berlin. Everybody too busy with domestic matters. But this book, Rice thought, is dangerous. If Abenstein should be found dangling from the ceiling some fine morning, it would be a sobering notice to anyone who might be influenced by this book. We would have had the last word, written the postscript. It would take a white man, of course. I wonder what Scorzani is doing these days. Rice pondered, reread the dust jacket of the book. The kite keeps himself barricaded up in this high castle. Nobody's fool. Whoever gets in and gets him won't get back out. Maybe it's foolish. The book, after all, is in print. Too late now. And that's Japanese-dominated territory. The little yellow men would raise a terrific fuss.
Nevertheless, if it was done adroitly, if it could be properly handled... Freiherr Hugo Rice made a notation on his pad. Broach subject with SS General Otto Skorzeny, or better yet, Otto Ollendorf, at Amp 3 of the Reichssicherheitshauptamt. Didn't Ollendorf head Einsatzgruppe D? And then, all at once, without warning of any kind, he felt sick with rage. I thought this was over, he said to himself. Does it have to go on forever? The war ended years ago, and we thought it was finished then. But that Africa fiasco, that crazy Seiss in court, carrying out Rosenberg's schemes. That Herr Hope is right, he thought, with his joke about our contact on Mars. Mars populated by Jews. We would see them there, too even with their two heads apiece, standing one foot high. I have my routine duties, he decided. I don't have time for any of these harebrained adventures, this sending of Einsatz commandos after Abenson. My hands are full greeting German sailors and answering coded radiograms. Let someone higher up initiate a project of that sort. It's their business. Anyhow, he decided, if I instigated it and it backfired, one can imagine where I'd be, in protective custody in Eastern General Gouvernement if not in a chamber being squirted with Zyklon B hydrogen cyanide gas. Reaching out, he carefully scratched the notation on his pad out of existence, then burned the paper itself in the ceramic ashtray. There was a knock, and his office door opened. His secretary entered with a large handful of papers. Dr. Goebel's speech, in its entirety. Ferdehoff put the sheets down on the desk. You must read it. Quite good. One of his best. Lighting another Simone Arts number 70 cigarette, Rice began to read Dr. Goebel's speech. Chapter 9 After two weeks of nearly constant work, Ed Frank Custom Jewelry had produced its first finished batch. There the pieces lay, on two boards covered with black velvet, all of which went into a square wicker basket of Japanese origin. And Ed McCarthy and Frank Frink had made business cards. They had used an art gum eraser carved out to form their name. They printed in red from this, and then completed the cards with a children's toy rotary printing set. The effect, they had used a high-quality Christmas card-colored heavy paper, was striking. In every aspect of their work, they had been professional. Surveying their jewelry, cards, and display, they could see no indication of the amateur. Why should there be, Frank Frink thought. We're both pros, not in jewelry making, but in shop work in general. The display boards held a good variety. Cuff bracelets made of brass, copper, bronze, and even hot-forged black iron. Pendants, mostly of brass, with a little silver ornamentation. Earrings of silver, pins of silver or brass. The silver had cost them a good deal. Even silver solder had set them back. They had bought a few semi-precious stones, too, for mounting in the pins. Baroque pearls, spinels, jade, slivers of fire opal. And if things went well, they would try gold, and possibly five- or six-point diamonds. It was gold that would make them a real profit. They had already begun searching into sources of scrap gold, melted-down antique pieces of no artistic value, much cheaper to buy than new gold. But even so, an enormous expense was involved. And yet, one gold pin sold would bring more than 40 brass pins. They could get almost any price on the retail market for a really well-designed and executed gold pin, assuming, as Frink had pointed out, that their stuff went over at all. At this point, they had not yet tried to sell. They had solved what seemed to be their basic technical problems. They had their bench with motors, flex cable machine, arbor of grinding and polishing wheels. They had, in fact, a complete range of finishing tools, 
ranging from the coarse wire brushes through brass brushes and Kratex wheels to finer polishing buffs of cotton, linen, leather, chamois, which could be coated with compounds ranging from emery and pumice to the most delicate rouges. And, of course, they had their oxyacetylene welding outfit, their tanks, gauges, hoses, tips, masks, and superb jeweler's tools, pliers from Germany and France, micrometers, diamond drills, saws, tongs, tweezers, third-hand structures for soldering, vices, polishing cloths, shears, hand-forged tiny hammers, rows of precision equipment, and their supplies of brazing rod of various gauge, sheet metal, pinbacks, links, earring clipbacks. Well over half the $2,000 had been spent. They had, in their Ed Frank bank account, only $250 now. But they were set up legally. They even had their PSA permits. Nothing remained but to sell. No retailer, Frank thought as he studied the displays, can give these a tougher inspection than we have. They certainly looked good, these few select pieces, each painstakingly gone over for bad welds, rough or sharp edges, spots of fire color. Their quality control was excellent. The slightest dullness or wire brush scratch had been enough reason to return a piece to the shop. We can't afford to show any crude or unfinished work. One unnoticed black speck on a silver necklace, and we're finished. On their list, Robert Childen's store appeared first, but only Ed could go there. Childen would certainly remember Frank Frink. You got to do most of the actual selling, Ed said, but he was resigned to approaching Childen himself. He had bought a good suit, new tie, white shirt to make the right impression. Nonetheless, he looked ill at ease. I know we're good, he said for the millionth time. But, hell. Most of the pieces were abstract, whirls of wire, loops, designs which to some extent the molten metals had taken on their own. Some had a spiderweb delicacy, an airiness. Others had a massive, powerful, almost barbaric heaviness. There was an amazing range of shape, considering how few pieces lay on the velvet trays. And yet one store, Frink realized, could buy everything we have laid out here. We'll see each store once, if we fail. But if we succeed, if we get them to carry our line, we'll be going back to refill orders the rest of our lives. Together, the two of them loaded the velvet board trays into the wicker basket. We could get something back on the metal, Frank said to himself, if worse comes to worst. And the tools and equipment. We can dispose of them at a loss, but at least we'll get something. This is the moment to consult the oracle. Ask, how will Ed make out on his first selling trip? But he was too nervous to. It might give a bad omen and he did not feel capable of facing it. In any case, the die was cast. The pieces were made, the shop set up, whatever the I Ching might blab out at this point. It can't sell our jewelry for us. It can't give us luck. I'll tackle Children's Place first, Ed said. We might as well get it over with, and then you can try a couple. You're coming along, aren't you? In the truck. I'll park around the corner. As they got into their pickup truck with their wicker hamper, Frink thought... God knows how good a salesman Ed is, or I am. Children can be sold, but it's going to take a presentation, like they say. If Juliana were here, he thought, she could stroll in there and do it without batting an eye. She's pretty, she can talk to anybody on earth, and she's a woman. After all, this is women's jewelry. She could wear it into the store. Shutting his eyes, he tried to imagine how she would look with one of their bracelets on, or one of their large silver necklaces, with her black hair and her pale skin, doleful, probing eyes, wearing a gray jersey sweater, a little bit too tight, the silver resting against her bare flesh, metal rising and falling as she breathed. God, she was vivid in his mind right now. 
every piece they made, the strong, thin fingers picked up, examined, tossing her head back, holding the piece high, Juliana sorting, always a witness to what he had done. Best for her, he decided, would be earrings, the bright, dangly ones, especially the brass, with her hair held back by a clip or cut short so that her neck and ears could be seen, and we could take photos of her for advertising and display. He and Ed had discussed a catalog so they could sell by mail to stores in other parts of the world. She would look terrific. Her skin is nice, very healthy, no sagging or wrinkles, and a fine color. Would she do it if I could locate her? No matter what she thinks of me, nothing to do with our personal life. This would be a strictly business matter. Hell, I wouldn't even take the pictures. We'd get a professional photographer to do it. That would please her. Her vanity probably as great as always. She always liked people to look at her, admire her, anybody. I guess most women are like that. They crave attention all the time. They're very babyish that way. He thought, Juliana could never stand being alone. She had to have me around all the time, complimenting her. Little kids are that way. They feel if their parents aren't watching what they do, then what they do isn't real. No doubt she's got some guy noticing her right now, telling her how pretty she is, her legs, her smooth, flat stomach. What's the matter? Ed said, glancing at him. Losing your nerve? No, Frink said. I'm not just going to stand there, Ed said. I've got a few ideas of my own, and I'll tell you something else. I'm not scared. I'm not intimidated just because it's a fancy place and I have to put on this fancy suit. I admit I don't like to dress up. I admit I'm not comfortable. But that doesn't matter a bit. I'm still going in there and really give it to that poophead. Good for you, Frink thought. Hell, if you could go in there like you did, Ed said, and give him that line about being a Jap Admiral's gentleman, I ought to be able to tell him the truth, that this is really good, creative, original, handmade jewelry, that... Hand wrought, Frink said. Yeah, hand wrought. I mean, I'll go in there and I won't come back out until I've given him a run for his money. He ought to buy this. If he doesn't, he's really nuts. I've looked around. There isn't anything like ours for sale anywhere. God, when I think of him maybe looking at it and not buying it, it makes me so goddamn mad I could start swinging. Make sure you tell him it's not plated, Frink said. That copper means solid copper and brass solid brass. You let me work out my own approach, Ed said. I got some really good ideas. Frink thought... What I can do is this. I can take a couple of pieces, Ed'll never care, and box them up and send them to Juliana, so she'll see what I'm doing. The postal authorities will trace her. I'll send it registered to her last known address. What'll she say when she opens the box? There'll have to be a note from me explaining that I made it myself, that I'm a partner in a little new creative jewelry business. I'll fire her imagination, give her an account that'll make her want to know more, that'll get her interested. I'll talk about the gems and the metals the places we're selling to, the fancy stores. Isn't it along here? Ed said, slowing the truck. They were in heavy downtown traffic. Buildings blotted out the sky. I better park. Another five blocks, Frink said. Got one of those marijuana cigarettes? Ed said. One would call me right about now. Frink passed him his package of Tien Lies, the heavenly music brand he had learned to smoke at WM Corporation. I know she's living with some guy, Frink said to himself, sleeping with him, as if she was his wife. I know Juliana. She couldn't survive any other way. I know how she gets around nightfall, when it gets cold and dark and everybody's home sitting around the living room. She was never made for a solitary life. Me neither, he realized. Maybe the guy's a real nice guy, 
some shy student she picked up. She'd be a good woman for some young guy who had never had the courage to approach a woman before. She's not hard or cynical. It would do him a lot of good. I hope to hell she's not with some older guy. That's what I couldn't stand. Some experienced mean guy with a toothpick sticking out of the side of his mouth, pushing her around. He felt himself begin to breathe heavily. Image of some beefy, hairy guy stepping down hard on Juliana, making her life miserable. I know she'd finally wind up killing herself, he thought. It's in the cards for her if she doesn't find the right man. And that means a really gentle, sensitive, kindly student type who would be able to appreciate all those thoughts she has. I was too rough for her, he thought. And I'm not so bad. There are a hell of a lot of guys worse than me. I could pretty well figure out what she was thinking, what she wanted, what she felt lonely or bad or depressed. I spent a lot of time worrying and fussing over her. But it wasn't enough. She deserved more. She deserves a lot, he thought. I'm parking, Ed said. He had found a place and was backing the truck, peering over his shoulder. Listen, Frink said. Can I send a couple of pieces to my wife? I didn't know you were married. Intent on parking, Ed answered him reflexively. Sure, as long as they're not silver. Ed shut off the truck motor. We're here, he said. He puffed marijuana smoke, then stubbed the cigarette out on the dashboard, dropped the remains to the cab floor. Wish me luck. Luck, Frank Frink said. Hey, look, there's one of those Jap waka poems on the back of this cigarette package. Ed read the poem aloud, over the traffic noises. Hearing a cuckoo cry, I looked up in the direction whence the sound came. What did I see? Only the pale moon and the dawning sky. He handed the package of Tien Lai's back to Frink. Ki-reist, he said, then slapped Frink on the back, grinned, opened the truck door, picked up the wicker hamper and stepped from the truck. I'll let you put the dime in the meter, he said, starting off down the sidewalk. In an instant, he had disappeared among the other pedestrians. Juliana, Frink thought. Are you as alone as I am? He got out of the truck and put a dime in the parking meter. Fear, he thought. This whole jewelry venture. What if it should fail? What if it should fail? That was how the oracle put it. Wailing tears beating the pot. Man faces the darkening shadows of his life. His passage to the grave. If she were here, it would not be so bad. Not bad at all. I'm scared, he realized. Suppose Ed doesn't sell a thing. Suppose they laugh at us. What then? On a sheet on the floor of the front room of her apartment, Juliana lay holding Joe Cinadella against her. The room was warm and stuffy with mid-afternoon sunlight. Her body and the body of the man in her arms were damp with perspiration. A drop rolling down Joe's forehead clung a moment to his cheekbone, then fell to her throat. "'You're still dripping,' she murmured. He said nothing, his breathing long, slow, regular, like the ocean, she thought. "'We are nothing but water inside.' "'How was it?' she asked. He mumbled that it had been okay. "'I thought so,' Juliana thought. "'I can tell. "'Now we both have to get up, pull ourselves together.' Or is that bad? Sign of subconscious disapproval. He stirred. Are you getting up? She gripped him tight with both her arms. Don't. Not yet. Don't you have to get to the gym? I'm not going to the gym, Juliana said to herself. Don't you know that? We will go somewhere. We won't stay here too much longer. 
but it will be a place we haven't been before. It's time. She felt him start to draw himself backward and up onto his knees, felt her hands slide along his damp, slippery back. Then she could hear him walking away, his bare feet against the floor, to the bathroom, no doubt, for his shower. It's over, she thought. Oh, well, she sighed. I hear you, Joe said from the bathroom, groaning. Always downcast, aren't you? Worry, fear, and suspicion about the me and everything else in the world. He emerged briefly, dripping with soapy water, face beaming. How would you like to take a trip? Her pulse quickened. Where? To some big city. How about north, to Denver? I'll take you out, buy you a ticket to a show, a good restaurant, taxi, get you evening dress, or what you need. Okay? She could hardly believe him, but she wanted to. She tried to. Will that dispute of yours make it? Joe called. Sure, she said. We'll both get some nice clothes, he said. Enjoy ourselves, uh, maybe for the first time in our lives, hmm? Keep you from cracking up. Where'll we get the money? Joe said. I have it. Look in my suitcase. He shut the bathroom door. The racket of water shut out any further words. Opening the dresser, she got out his dented, stained little grip. Sure enough, in one corner she found an envelope. It contained Reichbank bills, high value and good anywhere. Then we can go, she realized. Maybe he's not just stringing me along. I just wish I could get inside him and see what's there, she thought as she counted the money. Beneath the envelope she found a huge cylindrical fountain pen, or at least it appeared to be that. It had a clip, anyhow. But it weighed so much. Gingerly she lifted it out, unscrewed the cap. Yes, it had a gold point, but... What is this? she asked Joe, when he reappeared from the shower. He took it from her, returned it to the grip. How carefully he handled it. She noticed that, reflected on it, perplexed. More morbidity, Joe said. He seemed light-hearted, more so than at any time since she had met him. With a yell of enthusiasm, he clasped her around the waist, then hoisted her up into his arms, rocking her, swinging her back and forth, peering down into her face, breathing his warm breath over her, squeezing her until she bleated. No, she said. I'm just slow to change. Still a little scared of you, she thought. So scared I can't even say it, tell you about it. Out the window, Joe cried, stalking across the room with her in his arms. Here we go. Please, she said. Kidding. Listen, we're going on a march, like the march on Rome. You remember that? The Duce led them, my Uncle Carlo, for example. Now we have a little march. Less important, not noted in the history books. Right? Inclining his head, he kissed her on the mouth so hard that their teeth clashed. How nice we both look, in our new clothes. And you can explain to me exactly how to talk, uh, deport myself, right? Teach me manners, right? You talk okay, Juliana said. Better than me, even. No. He became abruptly somber. I talk very bad. A real wop accent. Didn't you notice it when you first met me in the cafe? I guess so, she said. It did not seem important to her. Only a woman knows the social conventions, Joe said, carrying her back and dropping her to bounce frighteningly on the bed. Without the woman, we discuss racing cars and horses and tell dirty jokes. No civilization. 
You're in a strange mood, Juliana thought. Restless and brooding until you decide to move on. Then you become hopped up. Do you really want me? You can ditch me, leave me here. It's happened before. I would ditch you, she thought, if I were going on. Is that your pay? she asked as he dressed. You saved it up? It was so much. Of course, there was a good deal of money in the East. All the other truck drivers I've talked to never made so... You say I'm a truck driver? Joe broke in. Listen, I rode that rig not to drive, but to keep off hijackers. Look like a truck driver, snoozing in the cab. Flopping in a chair in the corner of the room, he lay back, pretending sleep, his mouth open, body limp. See? At first she did not see, and then she realized that in his hand was a knife, as thin as a kitchen potato skewer. Good grief, she thought. Where had it come from? Out of his sleeve, out of the air itself. That's why the Volkswagen people hired me. Service record. We protected ourselves against Hasselden, those commandos. He led them. His black eyes glinted. He grinned sideways at Juliana. Guess who got the colonel there at the end? When we caught them on the Nile, him and four of his long-range desert group, months after the Cairo campaign. They raided us for gasoline one night. I was on sentry duty. Hazelden sneaked up, rubbed with black all over his face and body, even his hands. They had no wire that time, only grenades and submachine guns. All too noisy. He tried to break my larynx. I got him. From the chair, Joe sprang up at her, laughing. Rexpack, you tell them at the gym that you're taking a few days off. Phone them. His account simply did not convince her. Perhaps he had not been in North Africa at all, had not even fought in the war on the Axis side, had not even fought. What hijackers, she wondered. No truck that she knew of had come through Cannon City from the East Coast with an armed professional ex-soldier as guard. Maybe he had not lived in the USA, had made everything up from the start. A line to snare her, to get her interested, to appear romantic. Maybe he's insane, she thought. Ironic. I may actually do what I pretended many times to have done, use my judo and self-defense. To save my virginity? My life, she thought. But more likely, he is just some poor, low-class, wop, laboring slob with delusions of glory. He wants to go on a grand spree, spend all his money, live it up, and then go back to his monotonous existence. And he needs a girl to do it. Okay, she said. I'll call the gym. As she went toward the hall, she thought, He'll buy me expensive clothes and then take me to some luxurious hotel. Every man yearns to have a really well-dressed woman before he dies, even if he has to buy her the clothes himself. This binge is probably Joe Cinadello's lifelong ambition. And he is shrewd. I'll bet he's right in his analysis of me. I have an erotic fear of the masculine. Frank knew it, too. That's why he and I broke up. That's why I still feel this anxiety now, this mistrust. When she returned from the payphone, she found Joe once more engrossed in the grasshopper, scowling as he read, unaware of everything else. Weren't you going to let me read that? she asked. Maybe while I drive, Joe said, without looking up. You're going to drive, but it's my car. He said nothing. He merely went on reading. That grasshopper book, right, right, kept saying that. We got... Every character in the book is reading this same grasshopper last heavy. Wow. Wow. Joe.
Germany loses the war. Wow. Context of white supremacy. So we are substantially more than halfway done with this book. Thank goodness. Woo. We will pick up uh, next week. We are in chat. We're like halfway through chapter nine and there are 15 chapters in this book. So we are stomping uh, towards the end quickly. I think there should be a max of three sessions left and we will be all done. Thank goodness. Incidentally, I could be totally in error. I guess you all could let me know what is true. I suspect that the reason so many people pick this book is not because they glanced at it in advance or heard somebody say that it was good or had already read it themselves and thought it was great. It's only because of the television series. I suspect if this had not been on Netflix, no one would have wanted to read this book. And even some of the folks who said that they watched the television series as opposed to reading this book, like, wow, that is not a substitute at all. Those are two entirely different things. Number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Make sure I get in. Uh, folks who wrote in, uh, we had a different investor uh, who also wrote in. Much obliged to all the folks uh, who actually did write in, decide to participate, not just spectate uh, for Philip K. Dick's offering. Different investor wrote in. Greetings, Gus. I read that Dick was inspired by the book Bring the Jubilee. Ward Moore. The plot is what if the South won the Civil War? I watched the first season of the TV show Man in the High Castle and the main difference is that the TV show's main plot is that the U.S. defeated white people engage in an underground resistance effort similar to the French resistance of World War II. Bombings, shootings of Nazis and Japanese. There are a few black characters with speaking parts in the TV show including an a albino black actor Sean Ross that so far is not a part of the book as I said they are totally different like totally different the book and the show the albino character seemed like he was just placed there for shock value as opposed to being imp- an important part of the storyline I looked up three Nazis I had not heard of in Wikipedia They are real people. As I said, all the Nazi folks, especially the folks that are mentioned in chapter six, like they are all real folks. You can check them out online. Uh, W. Schellenberg considered a SS functionary. SS is the Schultz Staffel, Hitler's personal group of bodyguards who were greatly feared. He was tried and convicted at Nuremberg to a six year sentence, which he which was shortened due to illness. He died a few years later. He is portrayed in a lot of fictional books about World War Two. Uh, Balder von Schirach, head of the Hitler Youth, deported 65,000 Jews to death camps, convicted at Nuremberg to 20 years, served his entire sentence and died at age 67, 1974, eight years after being released. Dr. Arthur Seuss Inquart, Austrian Nazi, deported Dutch Jews, convicted at Nuremberg and, as I stated, sentenced to death by hanging. 
Uh, he writes from chapter 6. Think along reassuring lines. Recall order of world. What to draw on? Religion? He thought. Now Agavit performed sedately. Capital both. Capital both. You've caught it nicely. This is the style of thing precisely. Small form of recognizable world. Gondoliers. G.S. He shut his eyes, imagined the Doyle Cart Company as he had seen them on their tour after the war. The finite, finite world. Not sure what to make of this passage, maybe a meditation to alleviate anxiety. This, in my opinion, is, is again, it goes back to, this is uh, Mr. Tagomi after he's having his kind of panic attack or whatever you want to call it, um, where it's religion. That's what he says. He's calling what to draw on religion. How do I get back this sense of order? And he kind of goes through his kind of mantra of how he's trying to perceive things to kind of get back uh, some sense of balance uh, to get his sense of order back uh, about the world. But I think that's consistent in terms of you see when the white man is anxious, he falls back on white supremacy, racism. And we'll see this again, you know, things that they fall back on to kind of reestablish themselves in the world with the non-white characters. It seems to be the Oracle religion, the I Ching, all this mysticism and such. Uh, number five, we're blind moles creeping through the soil, feeling with our snouts. We know nothing. I perceive this. Now I don't know where to go. Could also accurately describe at least in part what it means to be a non-white victim in 2022. For sure. Chapter seven. What would it be like? He wondered to really know the Tao. The Tao is that which first lets the light, then the dark. That is the way. When the seed falls, it falls into the earth into the soil and beneath out of sight it comes to life the word Tao is translated into the way or the path the correct path for human existence I'm a little suspicious of this suspected racist author invoking Asian mysticism I Ching in the tech text is it respecting or mocking the philosophy I'm still processing this yet I would tend to kind of lean on the side of mocking but we'll have to see if folks, you know, we have more text to go. Folks can think about that, but um, well, yeah, we can think about that. Number two, Robert Children felt his face flush and he bent over his new drink to conceal himself from the eyes. How much I have to learn. Children thought they're so graceful and polite. And I, the white barbarian, it is true. Betty, how attractive. Robert Children thought again, the slender body. We were half big compared to them allowed out of the killing. Before we were fully done, the author captures the feelings of insecurity and inferiority of the oppressed and subjugated. Moreover, the sexual desire that the oppressed feel for their abusers. The reference to his skin color reminded me of some of Dr. Welsing's comments, for sure. Chapter 8. 1. At 8 o'clock in the morning, Frere Hugo Reese, the Reich's counsel in San Francisco. Reese is a fictional character. Number two, you have to watch out, Reese reflected, or all at once you find yourself counseled to a bunch of niggers on an island off the coast of South Africa, and the next you know, you have a black mammy for a mistress and ten or eleven little pickaninnies calling you daddy. Characterizes the hypocrisy of both contempt and sexual desire by racist man and racist woman for their non-white victims. This contempt is documented every week on the compensatory call-in program. For sure. Uh, chapter 9. Ed Frank, Jewelry, Custom, Jewelry. 
This whole plot line about the jewelry reminds me of the difficulty that black people have in becoming entrepreneurs in a system of white supremacy. Moreover, interestingly, they are making authentic jewelry and not fakes, which does not seem to afford them an advantage. We'll have to see how their business venture proceeds. Number two, maybe he's insane, she thought. Ironic. I may actually do what I pretended many times to have done. Use my judo and self-defense. Foreshadowing? To save my virginity. Oh, my God. Alice Siebold again. Uh, my life, she thought. But more likely... He is just some poor, low-class, wop, laboring slob with delusions of glory. He wants to go on a grand spree, very similar to the name-calling of non-white victims. The reference to virginity, based on the last reading, stood out for sure. Not what, not sure what to make of it. Uh, again, now, in the very beginning of the book, he had the image of the older white women who were like strippers or, you know, whatever, at this kind of sex parlor joint. And I said that's kind of a big theme in these books of dystopian futures where white people no longer dominate, where white women are sexually vulnerable. Uh, I think that's a big theme. So this white woman even having to think that this is just some lame WAP, which is kind of a code for a non-white person that she might have to use her defense to protect herself sexually. Like that's kind of, at least in my view, that's a big theme in a lot of these storylines, sci-fi storylines and such. Um yeah, I could be wrong. Other folks. Uh, let's see. Number three. Uh, and then the idea occurred to him. Bellows, obviously not experienced. Look at that. Maybe I can get some stuff on. Con oh, didn't get that far. Didn't get that far. Get there next week. Uh, so that's chapter nine. Hold that thought. Uh, let's see. Uh, the number again. Seven, two, zero, seven, one, six, seven, three hundred. The code five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see if we have any folks who have any observations on uh, the fortune of the reading that we've had for today. Let's see. Spectating, spectating, as I thought. Uh, let's see. Some of the thoughts that were notes that I took from this week. Uh, so they go... Or the, this is from the second portion, so the second audio segment. Uh, so we start off with Reese. He's reading The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, like everybody else. Uh, so he gets to the part, Germany lost, Hitler's dead. Oh, my gosh, what is going on? Uh, he said they have stripped this Superman. Now, that's important. Stripped so you're nude. We've had all we just I just read that line. Uh, and a uh, different investor he wrote in talking about the line uh, where children is talking about Betty, non-white, so-called Japanese female. It's beautiful, dark. Oh, we're half-baked in comparison to them. And they're superior, right? Said all that. And then we come back with this. And they have stripped the Superman, shown him for what he is, only a not superior make half baked like oh and he can't put it down like it's it's not just oh this is some rubbish you know we'll we'll kill this guy and whatever it's oh my god he's just riveted like i can't stop reading i can't stop reading jane elliott said reading dr welsing's book turned her brain to popcorn uh let's see next reshut the book set for a time in spite of himself he was upset more pressure should have been put on the Japs, he said to himself, to suppress this damn book. In fact, it's obviously deliberate on their part. They could have arrested this, whatever his name is, a Benson, 
they have plenty of power in the Middle West. Reading is more important than watching television. Apparently, there are some books that are so powerful. You see that right now, all this fighting over, you know, are we going to have to kill a mockingbird and the new American classic, The Hate You Give in the schools. Even they had book burnings <laughs> this year. Like, it's been incredible. Uh, just down from that, they know a million tricks. Those novelists take Dr. Goebbels. That's how he started out. Writing fiction appeals to the base lusts that hides in everyone, no matter how respectable on the surface. Yes, the novelist knows humanity, how worthless they are, ruled by their testicles. Hmm. How interesting. Gets to the genital level. I'll say racist man, racist woman. They are ruled by white supremacy racism dominating non-white people but sex second strongest motivating force according to neely fuller jr and this whole thing reminded me of dr francis Cress welsing again everything gets to the genital level level white genetic annihilation and that's there's so much of that all throughout this uh text uh let's see next and then they come back with all of that very next segment maybe it's foolish the book after all is in print too late now and that's japanese dominated territory the little yellow men would raise a terrific fuss talking about the genitals i don't think they mean height because you got uh i was gonna tell you yao ming but that's the wrong country but you got tall everybody in japan is not uh short little yellow man genital level again uh next they keep bringing my, the fellow up who was hanged, Sace uh, uh the African fiasco where they were not able to finish the genocide and slaughter all the Negros. That crazy Sace Incourt carrying out Rosenberg's schemes. I guess not perfectly. Uh, let's see. Next chapter nine. So this is with the whole jewelry scheme with Frank Fink and Ed McCarthy. Uh, I think one. Even that, what what's a what is a slang term for testicles? Isn't that the family jewels? Another metaphor, right? Getting to the genital level, especially because Frank Fink he wants to give the jewelry to Juliana and talking about all of their sexual activity and all the rest of it, right to the genital level. So that's one. Uh, but then all of this plays into that regular uh, white supremacist trope, right? That's what the Turner Diaries and all that part of the so-called Jewish conspiracy is. You know, they've cornered the diamond market and the jewelry market. And that's, you know, part of their conspiracy and them doing all of that, right? Individuals classified as white are dominating all areas of people activity. But I also thought even with the really, so that's why I said, if you contrast like Mr. Tagomi, where he's all into the I Ching and religion and what do I do and consult the Oracle and all of that with their jewelry, it's very precise. And they even talk about the meticulous German equipment that they get to construct their jewelry. It's not uh, metaphysics. It's very precise industrial work that they're doing to pr uh, produce this original artwork, right? That's the comparison that I'm making. Same thing like when they were talking about the television and space programs, right? Same thing. White people are all about that logic and mathematic Germanic efficiency, right? Uh, in contrast to the non-white people in the book. Uh, let's see. Next. And then we get another reference. They say... 
Uh, if Juliana were here, he thought she could stroll in there and do it without batting an eye. She's pretty. She can talk to anybody on earth and she's a woman. After all, this is women's jewelry. She could wear it into the store, shutting his eyes. He tried to imagine how she would look with one of their bracelets on or one of their large silver necklaces with her black hair and pale skin doleful probing eyes wearing a gray jersey sweater a little bit too tight the silver resting against her bare flesh metal rising and falling as she breathed uh again the focusing on the melanin deficiency of white people that's two books in a row talking about the paleness of white people uh let's see she would look terrific same paragraph talking about Juliana her skin is nice very healthy no sagging or wrinkles and a fine color would she do it if I could locate her no matter what she thinks of me nothing to do with our personal life this would be a strictly business matter the business of white supremacy racism uh, let's see they have uh, marijuana cigarettes uh, that's again where I'm saying now how different are things in this world now 1960s uh san francisco man you got all the the cannabis cigarettes that you want i mean all day long it didn't become legal in california until a couple years ago but i mean hey you're in berkeley in 1960 i think you could probably get all of the narcotics that you would like and then some uh but he says uh so ed and and ed asks if they can get a marijuana cigarette uh he says it would calm him down I said, uh, okay, dick drug abuser. Uh, he says, Frank passed him the package of Tien Lays, the heavenly music brand he had learned to smoke at the WM Corporation. And then they come up again. He says the, the Tien Lay, uh, that they've got this, uh, poem on the package. He says, Hey, look, there's one of those Jap waka poems on the back waka it's like a small traditional japanese poem really popular they still write these to this day allegedly uh, and they read the poems jesus christ what is this you know jap nonsense but that's where the drug association is this is not a german product i thought that was important that this is some sort of ridiculed nonsense you know japanese product not the germans and philip k dick i mean hey all the drugs you can get heard that at the beginning uh Anything else? I think that is it. I will say I'm good with my notes for the week. Uh, Side folks, they dialed in, didn't have commentary or questions. Uh, I generally do not pick books for the book club where I am not certain people will be engaged. This is exactly why we didn't read this book i looked at it and was pretty sure people would not really be engaged like this is not the television show and and it's fiction so like you really would have to be closely following along to even appreciate the aspects of racism white supremacy to just hang out and have folks who are not really engaged or following along because we did have folks who said it's really complicated and trying to follow the storyline and all the rest of it this is a drug addict white man so this is one that you can't really be kind of casual uh in your listening probably would do probably would not towards no probably that's why we didn't read this book uh when it came up in 2015 and i went back and looked at the books that we read instead Whew, 
no contest. The books that we read instead were Half Has Never Been Told, A Foot in Each World, Leonita McLean, uh, Medical Apartheid. On no day would I switch out and read this book as opposed to those like at all. Anywho, thankfully, blessed Lord, we will be done with this book. As I said, Max, uh, three weeks. And it's not even, there's not, you know, something that be, can be gleaned from it. But again, this is a book club. Uh, and what I told folks, like when we read books where people don't engage, it would be way more efficient because this is such a short book. Read it individually and share a comment, especially since people aren't engaging. Like we can make it really short. I could have read this on my own. Take 30 minutes. Share your thoughts. We can move on to a book where people will be better able to follow along and comment. Anywho, we will be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Looking forward. Codification. That will be coming up very flagrantly tomorrow. Should be here for the compensatory call in uh, Saturday uh, and then talking about the Duke lacrosse rape scandal from way back when uh, on this coming Monday with a white guest. We'll have more details about that this coming Saturday. Uh, Much obliged uh, to the folks who wrote in. Thankfully, have a few folks paying attention. Hopefully some of the folks in the archives of some uh, value. Maybe the folks who voted dozen of them or more who voted for this book. Maybe they'll have some commentary as we get uh, closer to the end. Much obliged for the folks uh, who listened archive live. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Sobriety would be best. I don't think getting the, what is it? The Tian Liang. I don't think getting the, uh, Japanese marijuana cigarettes or any of the other beverages, liquor, beer, whatever else. I don't think that's going to help us solve this problem. Going to need high functioning brain computers. Uh, In addition to being sober, if you're out and about, someone is being hostile and rowdy exit. Uh, You want to be thinking this person could be armed. This could be a lethal event in a matter of seconds. Again, we'll discuss this tomorrow if you're in a vehicle sober buckled not on the cell phone we kind of need all of our attention to be mindful about what's happening around us trying our best to be safe and to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.